Welcome to I'll Be Dads, a Woodhouse podcast. I'm Robin. And I'm Scott. And we are a father-daughter duo who read and discuss the works of P.G. Woodhouse. And today we will be talking about Love Among the Chickens. Uh, Love Among the Chickens was first published in England in 1906 and in the U.S. in 1909. Now, the version that we had going over is not the one that was originally published in 1906-1909. Woodhouse revised the book in 1921, and that is the version that we have. The original version, the first five chapters were written in uh, third person before switching to the first person route. I, I have not read that version, but I did read a lot of the first chapter. And I will say we do have the superior version. However superior you might think it is, definitely uh, better than the original version from what I saw. Also, the ending of that book is slightly different, but I did not research what the ending was, so I don't know what the difference is. Except for William Tell Told Again, which is a retelling of the William Tell story, this is the first book Woodhouse wrote that was not a school story. Okay. You know, his first book was published in 1902, and all those except for the William Tell one were school stories. This is the first one that is not. It is also the only novel to feature, and I'm going to have to try to pronounce this, Stanley Fedekonha Eukridge, (laughs) (laughs) who at least I will just refer to as Eukridge. He appears in 19 short stories. But this this is the only novel, this is? This is the only novel. This is the first appearance of him. All 19 short stories occur before the novel. Like, Eukridge oh. of those short stories mm-hmm. is before he marries Millie. Oh, interesting. So, yeah. You're you're meeting him at the end of his Woodhouse saga, and everything after is stuff that happened before. And this is also, I believe, the only uh, appearance of Jeremy Garnett. Uh, there is another character who is the narrator of all the short stories. Uh, I can't remember his full name, but his nickname is Corky. Mm-hmm. He is also a writer. I I think he. I will just say I think he is more easily taken advantage of than Jeremy is. So I don't, I don't know if that's a good or a bad thing. Well, I mean, I, I guess we will kind of explore because I think perhaps we have varying opinions on Jeremy and possibly Anchorage. I think you are right. We probably do have varying opinions on Jeremy. I mean. Robin and I generally try not to talk too much about the books before we do this, but we do sometimes talk a little. And also, uh, we both have YouTubes in which we talk about our books. So some of the stuff, some of the opinions we have will be put out there. More Robin, because I watch Robin's videos and Robin does not watch my videos. <laughs> I knew that was going to come up as soon as you mentioned our YouTubes. <laughs> I'm not bitter. Sure. 
I totally <laughs> believe that. I, and I'm sure you're not bitter just because I get more views and subscribers than you. Look, <laughs> I'm just gonna do this disgusting magic trick anytime you say something. Else, I was like, it's a good thing you you're not seeing this because Robin put a cracker in her mouth, and I said that, and then she <laughs> took it out of her mouth. All right. Uh, <laughs> uh, although Ukridge appears in fewer works than some of his more famous creations. He is the longest running character because he appeared in 1906 and his final appearance was in 1966. Well, you know, makes him one year longer than both Jeeves and Worcester who appeared over a 59-year span mm -hmm. or Blanding's Castle at 54 unless... You count Sunset at Blandings, which was published, but is a unfinished novel. Mm. So if if you count that, then probably some of the Blandings Castle characters will count. But as far as published completed works, Ukeridge is the uh, longest running one. Mm -hmm. uh, generally, these uh, chapters are fairly short because the page. Uh, how long is your book? Because I did it on Kindle. Uh, it's I think it's 135. Okay, yeah. Uh, yeah, 135. On Kindle, it says it's like 153, and there are 23 chapters. So, <laughs> yeah, they're not going to be very long. No. All right. Chapter one, a letter with a postscript. Jeremy Garnett's landlady says a gentleman was there to see him the night previously. Uh, a gentleman with a very powerful voice. Caruso Garnett jokes. Uh, I'll point out that Crusoe was a famous opera singer at the time. Ah, okay. I thought it was going to be a question you asked, so I was like, maybe I can answer that. No, um, I, I didn't even make a note the, about that. The ones that I think you're going to ask so I answer beforehand are the ones you don't ask. And then you ask me something else, and it's like, I, I, didn't, I didn't research that. <laughs> <laughs> it turns out it was Ukeridge, which shocks Garnet. He hadn't seen him in years, and having read part of the first chapter in the original book, I, I do have to say the revision is much better mm -hmm. because uh, the original version, Garnet is basically telling this poor landlady his entire backstory <laughs> with Ukridge. And I'm just like, <laughs> I, I just came here to tell you this. Let me yeah. go. I just can't just came from a long message. I don't need to know everything. He's not sure if he's able to have Ukridge in his life, which anybody who has read the short stories first, this seems to make a lot of sense as opposed to Robin. This is her first encounter with Ukridge. What? Why? Mm -hmm. But I, I believe I actually read the novel after I read all the short stories. Mm. And I was like, yeah, I can understand that. <laughs> uh, he points out Ukridge is the type to ask you to dinner, borrow money from you to pay the bill, and get you into the fight with a cabman. He will also, although I don't know that it happens here, it definitely happens with Corky. He will uh, take like your best clothing mm -hmm. and, and just forget to return it. I don't think that happened in the story, but I think there is a mention of your bridge wearing someone else's clothes or something. Yeah. Like that well, sounds familiar. Uh, 
I I do know there is one thing about clothes, but I did write it up in the chapter, so I will bring it up then. Yeah. Uh, the landlady comes back in a letter from an artist friend of his, Lickford. Uh, he talks of meeting Ukridge, who ends up borrowing money from him, promising to repay it. Does not happen often. And I guarantee you at the end of the novel, after the end of the novel, nobody gets their money. <laughs> <laughs> Ukridge uh, inquired of uh, Lickford about Garnet, and Lickford gave him Garnet's address, seeing no way out of it. Uh, he suggests Garnet fly away while he can, and Garnet thinks that's a good idea. He rings up the landlady and says he's off and will send her his address. She's about to ask what to do if Ukridge comes back. Then there's a thunderous knocking at the door. It is Ukridge, and he calls out for Garnet in a tremendous voice. Not knowing hardly anything about Ukridge, uh, when it says that when Ukridge was around, things began to happen swiftly and violently. Mm -hmm. um, I just made a note. I, I just said, buckle up. Because I'm like, usually if that's how you're describing a character, it's accurate. I did make a comment that his name was very intense. Stanley Featherstone Hall Eucharist. Yeah. So. I don't know. For some reason, and I don't know, maybe it's changed, but I don't think it is. For some reason, I thought his middle name was just Featherstone. Or maybe oh, mine, mine just... So when that's easier to say, so that's what it is. Sure. It's like, I don't like that ha part. <laughs> and, and I'm just going to go, now I know I've said Ukridge, you've said Ukridge. I'm just going <laughs> to go with Ukridge. Okay. To make it easier. You're okay. probably right anyways. Okay. I haven't listened to any audiobooks with character in it, so I don't, I don't yeah. know. So we're going with Eucharist just to make it easier. <laughs> okay. That was all I had. That's all you had. Okay. Yeah. But, I mean, to be fair, it's literally like two and a half pages, the first chapter. To be fair, the the first version was not two and a half pages. <laughs> I think it was two and a half pages just for him to talk about his past with Eucharist. Uh Chapter two, Mr. and Mrs. S.F. Eucridge. Eucridge greets Jeremy and then calls out the door for Millie. Millie is a young woman who Eucridge introduces as his wife. As somebody who had read all the short stories beforehand, just the thought of Eucridge being married was just confusing for me. <laughs> uh, Jeremy, Jeremy has trouble reconciling Eucridge with wife. And yeah, I wrote that as someone who has read the stories. I did too. Uh, Eucridge tells him to buck up old horse an honorific he uses with everyone and notes his surprise oh and then Jeremy uh, notes his surprise at Eucridge being married he suggests Jeremy do the same and then borrows money to pay the cabbie he departs leaving Jeremy and Mrs. Eucridge he feels pity for her not wishing marriage to Eucridge on anyone they share some small talk and she asks if he ever kept fowls he has not, and she seems disappointed. She wishes he had more experience. Eucridge returns and tells Jeremy he had been reading his most recent book. When asked how he liked it, Eucridge explained the man at the bookstore 
said it wasn't a free library and wanted him to pay for it. Uh, Eukridge explains they're going to keep fowls, run a chicken farm, which even with Robin's limited experience with Woodhouse, this, this is, is familiar. <laughs> yes. This is the third time I've heard about this. Uh, I don't think it's the last. <laughs> I don't think it, it will appear too many more times, but I do mm -hmm. think it does come up again. There would be no expenses and large profit, he said. Which, that's the point where I'm like, I'm out. Yeah. It's like, sounds like a scam. Yeah. It's, it's, it's like a one-person pyramid scheme. He talks about a hen laying an egg every day for a week with the keep of the hen costing nothing. Yeah. I have some slight objections to this, but you could sit down ask me. Uh, apparently you borrow the hen. Wait, no, you borrow a dozen hens, and then they have a dozen hens. And once you have the 144 hens, you give the hens you borrowed back. Nothing easier. <laughs> they have got the lend of an old house with large grounds for this purpose. <laughs> Jeremy says to let them know how it goes. Eukridge says he's going with them. Somehow Jeremy finds himself agreeing to the venture. Not an uncommon occurrence when it comes to Eukridge. Mm -hmm. But again, Corky is much more of a pushover than Jeremy. I, I found Eukridge interesting. <laughs> loaded term. He he wasn't as bad as Smith. Now I, I do want to point out that Robin and I have talked. I pointed out there there were some similarities between the two, although there are also just as many differences between them. Yeah. Um, I found Eucridge as a whole more just like ignorant and oblivious. And that's how he screws people over. Whereas with Smith, it seems very intentional and manipulative. However, Eucridge is more rude. <laughs> Um, to people's faces. Smith is more subtle about it. Because I, I literally have it highlighted here where Euchred says to Jeremy, I regard you, old man, purely and simply as a wart. I'm like, okay. And then later in the book, you call someone fat, like, multiple times to their face. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> like, I get you're, like, oblivious, but you can't just like walk around society just insulting people in their face and then act like they're crazy. I do think that with Eucridge, mm -hmm. he, he is definitely rude, but I don't think it's intentional. I don't think it's intentional either. With Smith, it's definitely intentional. Yeah, yeah. I don't think it's intentional either, but I think it's one of those things where it's like, Okay, but if someone is pointing out to you that you're being rude unintentionally as it is, like, maybe just take that. But Eucharist is still like, but that wasn't my intent, so yeah, it's his fault that he took me calling him a fat old buffer. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> really? it's, it's the whole idea of, like, intent versus impact. <laughs> intent doesn't mean anything. Yeah. Um, Although it makes you view Eucridge more leniently than you do Smith. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I also underlined 
that there's apparently a magazine called the CAC, which is chiefly of, about chickens. And I, I made a note, I'm like, you're really just going to assume that people are going to jump to that. And then I did make another comment. I said, oh, no, it's the chicken scheme again. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I, I think at this point, you're at least prepared to see plots that you've seen before. <laughs> yes, but most of them make sense to me. The chicken scheme does not. <laughs> you should get used to that feeling with Eucridge. <laughs> Very few of his schemes mm -hmm. make sense mm -hmm. or are successful. <laughs> this is probably the closest he has come to success. Thank God. <laughs> yes. Um, I also commented when, you know, Euchred is outlining the scheme and says that, like, once you have the 144 chickens, you return the 12 that you originally borrowed. And I said, it's stealing. Because <laughs> well, I also, I said, it's stealing. Well, no, I mean, he legitimately borrows them. But he didn't pay for them. Oh, okay. Tomorrow, though. Oh, okay. I mean, if somebody knows you're borrowing something, he's essentially renting chickens. Yeah, yeah but it, I don't believe it really gets into the details of how he does it. Now, mm -hmm. if he said, "You let me borrow this chicken, and I will pay you this," which is mm -hmm. quite possible, knowing Eucridge. But I don't believe that that's ever stated. That's how he borrowed. Yeah. Now, I would say it is stealing simply because at, at least some of these chickens, spoiler mm -hmm. alert, there's no way for them to be returned. True. Because <laughs> there are chickens that were either lost or died. Or eaten a lot of them. I, I, I mean, again, they did die. Yeah. <laughs> when they were eaten. It just, it's something that, like, I don't think I made an actual note about it, but as I was reading the book, I'm like, you're eating a lot of the chickens. <laughs> like, a lot of them. But you're not getting that many. <laughs> Welcome to Eucridge Schemes. <laughs> <laughs> Um, you, you're going to have some variation of this happening 19 more times. <laughs> I also made a comment that the whole thing where you could just like, oh, Jeremy, you're coming with us. Like, to me, like, it just felt like out of nowhere. Like, they haven't seen each other in like five years, and now you could shows up. He's like, all right, you're coming with me to run a chicken farm. It's like, but. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I, who read 19 other stories beforehand, I'm like, yeah, that makes sense. That you could right. do that, yes. All right, I mean, maybe I just don't know the character well. But I, I literally, my comment was, this just seems out of nowhere, even for Plum. Again, because I read these mm -hmm. out of order, I read all the short stories first, and then I read this. Mm -hmm. It seems very in character for Eucridge, for me. And yeah. I do think... As you go through the novel and you see how Eucharist acts, 
perhaps it makes more sense to you. It, it does. Like assume that yeah. everybody would see the sense of doing things the way he feels they should be done. Yeah. Even though it seldom makes sense. Yeah, like after going through the book, it, it does make more sense. But remember, like I'm making my notes as yeah. I'm reading. And like to me, like while it makes sense with knowing Euchre's character, it still feels just like a bit sudden. Uh, chapter three, Waterloo Station. Jeremy goes to the train station. Tiss, tiss, the bookstall for not having copies of Jeremy Garnett's book and goes to find Eucharist. They get on the train and Jeremy notices an elderly gentleman accompanied by a pretty girl. Millie is in another cabin because she doesn't like smoke, so the man and the girl, her name is Phyllis and she is the man's daughter. They and other people get into the compartment. As they take off, Jeremy notices the girl reading a book and is more surprised to see it as his own book. I forget what the title of it is, and I didn't write it down. So. Um, it is something about the author, I think. Oh, The Maneuvers of Arthur. Ah, uh, okay. I kind of just assumed it was about King Arthur. I, I don't know. He doesn't really get necessarily... I don't, I don't think it is. <laughs> huh? I don't think it's about King Arthur at all. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> After a time, many of the people are dozing, and the elderly gentleman asks about the girl's book. She says she was given it to by someone named Molly, who considered it rubbish and didn't want it. Jeremy thinks that he hates Molly. <laughs> but the girl says she likes it and believes it very clever. She continues with what she thinks the author is like, an old young man with an eyeglass, and also conceited, and not knowing many girls. <laughs> so a Woodhouse character. <laughs> I was like, when I read that, obviously I didn't know Jeremy well, but with you just describing that again, I'm like, I mean, is she really that wrong? Uh, her estimation of one of Jeremy's characters makes Jeremy think less of the character himself. Phyllis and her father get off at the station, and Jeremy notices the book is left behind. He gets off and returns it to her, and she thanks him. I was going to ask a question before I went into my notes. Okay. <clears throat> so, I had a question after reading this chapter, and maybe it's just that I'm used to, like, trains and cities. And obviously they run differently <laughs> Oh, this, this was over a hundred years ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, they run differently be both because of location and time. Um, <laughs> how long were the train's doors open that he could pick up the book, go hand it to Phyllis, and get back to his spot? Like, I know this is a question that has no like bearing on anything, but it's just one of those things where I'm like, I I'm going to assume that they probably had like at least a 10-minute stop at... I, that's just an assumption. I could be wrong. Again, this was 1906 or earlier, so I have nothing to base this on. <laughs> but I'm just assuming, you know what? P.G. Woodhouse probably knows about more about trains at that time than I do. Yeah, like, I'm, I'm not doubting that it. it's possible. That was nothing that ever crossed my mind. But that's why it's good to have you here. So you're like, 
oh, wait a minute. <laughs> That's not what I'm doing. It's just, it's one of those things where I'm like, I'm obviously used to the trains in like Chicago where the door is open for maybe a minute if you're lucky. But you also <laughs> have to remember that you have like modern times now, you have like somebody at the beginning of the, with, of the train is able to communicate with somebody at the end of the train. True. They did not have that then. So they probably needed time mm. for it to pass from, okay, every, we're ready to go kind of mm. thing. Whereas, okay, now, that's fair. so yeah. you know, maybe not 10 minutes, but I assume enough time for somebody to get off the train and get back on the train. Yeah. Like this, this isn't the first story where I've read about a character doing that. I don't even think it's the first Woodhouse story that I've read about a character doing that. It was just, it's just something that sticks out to me. Every time I read it, where I'm just like, how much time do you have? <laughs> yeah. And I, w I was watching a, a video about somebody traveling on a train, and she was talking about, like, there, yeah, there were some train stations where they basically just stopped for a minute. But mm -hmm. along the route, there was, like, eight stations where they were there for, like, at least ten minutes. Mm -hmm. So... That's okay. where I came up with the 10 minute thing. But then you called me on it and like right. had to embarrass me. Well, no, I was just surprised. I'm not doubting you at all. <laughs> you know, um, I do not believe your knowledge about early 20th century train stops. <laughs> wow. I mean, <laughs> if, if I were to say that, it wouldn't necessarily be wrong. <laughs> I don't think you've shown a huge interest in dreams. I, 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 I'm feeling attacked here. <laughs> um, I made a note that the use of austerity was used in the chapter. And this is just your thing now. Yeah. I, I, I brought it up, but then I've done a horrible job of keeping track of it. And you just, you know, <laughs> it's yours. <laughs> yeah, like you mentioned it before we ever recorded a podcast. I'm like, oh, yeah, that's a cool idea. And then I was like, well, since Dad's doing it, like, I'll do it just in case he misses any. And then you just never did it. <laughs> yeah, it was just something that I I, I saw in theory, but when it came to practice, I I always forget to note it. <laughs> Not always, but very infrequently do I remember yeah. to. So when they're on the train, Ugridge, like, saves a spot for... Jeremy and Millie, I guess. But he, he then makes a comment of like all of the fellow passengers. He's like, I can see with half an eye that all these blighters are confirmed egg eaters. And my comment was, what do egg eaters look like? Like somebody that Eucridge would just assume that would buy <laughs> eggs from him. Yeah, like it's just it's just one of those things <laughs> of like, I don't think you're wrong. Most people I I think most people eat eggs. Most people in those times probably ate eggs. I don't think you're yeah, wrong, think but like what it is is you're in the part of the novel where you're still thinking that Eucridge has rationality. Isn't just speaking out of his ass because that's the way he wants things to be. Yeah. And I have experienced Eucridge and I'm like, oh, he's just being Eucridge. And <laughs> yeah. I don't know what to tell you except yeah. What he said didn't make any sense, obviously. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, it, but it also brought up a serious question. What do egg eaters look like? You know, it's not just me. Well, they have yolk around their lips. 
<laughs> really? That's a serious question. Well, I was just saying, like, it's when you have someone or someone's with ADD, sometimes those silly little comments are not just silly little comments, but they lead to actual questions in my brain that I'm like, oh, well, that's interesting. What do egg eaters look like? Do I look like an egg eater? So sometimes it, it conjures serious questions. I just want to point out, before we started the podcast, I was like, "But what would we go off on a tangent about? Yeah, as soon as you said that, I just started cackling in my head because I knew that one of my notes was about egg eaters. <laughs> no, seriously, answer the question. What yeah. do egg eaters look like? Yeah, Dad, answer the fucking question. <laughs> I don't know. They have faces? That's a little too vague for me, thank you. <laughs> um, and then my other note was when uh, Phyllis, you know, and her dad are talking about Jeremy's book, and she says that she liked it. Uh, my, I made a note, I was like, it'd be really funny if she didn't, though. I, I do find it amusing that throughout the book, when she talks about it, she points out that Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> she points out that Jeremy's heroines mm -hmm. suck. suck, which is just kind of amusing the Woodhouse writing that because he's not often known for writing great female characters. I didn't mind Phyllis. No, it, I, no, but I mean, let's be fair. Often, not often, mm -hmm. probably let's say at least half the time the female characters kind of like oh you know. yeah 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 i i think as his career goes on there are some that develop as their own characters yeah but he does have quite a few who are just like oh your chest capital l love capital i interest <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> Even yeah. though you didn't answer my question. Do you want to know what an egg thrower looks like? <laughs> <laughs> I'd, be, I'd be impressed if you get it all the way over here. <laughs> I'll be seeing you next month. So. <laughs> well, six <laughs> weeks. Six so. weeks, yeah. I don't think <laughs> Please don't throw an egg at me. <laughs> <laughs> You're just going to have to rely on me not remembering. I know. No, you can't put a note in your phone that's cheating. What? It's cheating. You do that to me all the time. I don't want you can't write it in your planner. I'm not writing in my planner. I don't want to drive 12 hours and then immediately get an egg thrown at me. <laughs> Did you forget the word egg? Yeah. <laughs> the note originally just said throw at Robin. <laughs> I had throw at as like, oh, throw what? Oh, I gotta put egg in there. <laughs> of course, I'm probably going to end up throwing these notes away, so you better hope that that's the case. I could take a picture of them, though. No. <laughs> Although, that is for very poorly written, so even if I take a picture, if I look at it six weeks from now, I'd be like, what? <laughs> and I, I also don't know if you'll remember the context. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm like, okay, I, I got Robin, and I got at Pretty sure I would get throw egg. 
those aren't very uh, <laughs> well-defined G's there, so. <laughs> so. So you have a chance. <laughs> Again, I don't want to drive 12 hours to see you and then get an egg thrown at me. Well, I'll still spend time with you. <laughs> That's just not the warm welcome I'm hoping for. I'll, I'll, I'll let you wash the egg off. <laughs> <laughs> you don't make me keep egg on my egg on your face for a whole week. Oh, so you're gonna throw it at my face? You don't just throw it vaguely in my direction. <laughs> we'll, we'll we'll go to that place you want to go, and everybody will just be leaning away from. You. <laughs> yeah, because I'll probably rotten egg. <laughs> Six days later, it's like ramen. That really smells. <laughs> it's a gift from my dad. <laughs> All right, chapter four, the arrival. The three head to the farm. Eucharidge says a couple is in charge at the present time and will be ready for them. They ring the doorbell and no one answers. They hear a dog on the other side of the door. Eucharidge tries to calm the dog down and it hurls itself against the door. Eucharidge says they'll get through the kitchen window. They get in and start to make tea and try to figure out what to do about the dog. They open the door, ready to face the dog, to discover it has taken off. Jeremy wonders what Eucharidge will do if the chickens come before the beetles do, and Eucharidge says he'll have them run around the basement. The dog is back, and they're about to face it when a voice calls through the window. Uh, the man with the voice has a gun. It also happens to be Beale. Eucharidge says, what is the story? Didn't Beale know he was coming? No. Didn't he get his letter? No. <laughs> it turns out the letter is in Eucharist's pocket. Uh, and I know this happens again in the book. Mm -hmm. Also not an uncommon thing with Eucharist outside of this novel. <laughs> what? Yeah, I, I wrote that. Uh, Eucharist acknowledges that Beale is not as to blame as he might have originally believed. Which is quite a concession for Eucharidge. So I only have like three notes on this one. <clears throat> My first is confusion about the phrase halt and maimed. What's so the phrase? Halt and maimed. It's at the beginning of the chapter and it says, Coom Regis is not a place for the halt and maimed. I didn't know what that meant. All right, let me... <laughs> I'm glad I didn't read because I, I, I had to uh, get this through Kindle Unlimited because all the copies I could find had the old version. Mm. So uh, let me bring this up. Well, maimed obviously makes sense. Sure. Uh, it was just a, a, like, I've never heard that phrasing. Oh, apparently it has to do with the Bible. Uh, the maimed in the halt are among the outcasts who are to be brought in to the gospel feast according to the parable. It's just lame persons collectively. Oh, okay. Yeah, it comes from Luke 14, 21, the poor and the maimed and the halt and the blind. Mm. So I'm sure if you go back in the Bible when it was mm -hmm. written in, whichever that one was, Greek or Aramaic or whatever it was. Mm -hmm. So yeah, just lame in some way. Okay. Or di disabled, I guess we would say now. <laughs> yeah. yeah. 
Because <laughs> to me, <laughs> these guys were lame. <laughs> you guys kind of suck. <laughs> so you can't, <laughs> can't go to this chicken farm. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> I also, when they were locked out of the house, I did wonder if they were going to break in. And it, so it made me wonder if maybe Ubridge forgot to like lease the house and that this actually wasn't theirs. So I, I went into a whole thing of like, how many crimes is he going to commit? Uh, <laughs> to be fair, when I first read the book, I kind of assumed, oh, <laughs> he just, he borrowed the house the same way yeah. he borrowed his friend's clothes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, so that was that was a note of like, oh, is he is he just full on breaking in and gonna take over someone's house? That that is definitely what I assumed the first time I read it. I also then made a, a comment after it's revealed that you forgot to send a letter to Beal. Is that it, it seems like Beal is used to this, where he's just kind of like, yeah, that that happened. They don't really go into it through the novel. But especially at the end, Beale really seems to have almost like a sort of a hero worship thing for Eucridge. Mm-hmm. And I'm just kind of like, I it, I don't know how you feel about it. It kind of made sense for me because for some reason that I don't necessarily see, uh, mm-hmm. Eucridge has this kind of charisma that other people mm-hmm. uh, kind of like forgive him for stuff. I, I, don't think I've really seen too many people have quite the admiration that Beale seems to have, but chapter five, buckling two. Jeremy wakes up the next day and goes into town to swim or bathe. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm gonna go bathe. I will point out to Robin that the water is cold and Jeremy compares it to a morning tub. Just so that'll piss you off. Well, I was literally just thinking about, you know, when we go to South Carolina, we walk, you know, on the beach at like dawn. I was thinking about like, what if we actually like got in the water at that time? Like it would be cold. And I'm like, then you'd be going, how would Halcyon? (laughs) Actually, it probably wouldn't be that cold. I could probably do it. But like, it's one of those things where I'm just like, no. <laughs> no, it doesn't feel good. Unless it's like balls hot outside. That's the only time cold water feels good. I mean, I don't I don't know what to say because, you know, we were in New England in August and we got into the, the ocean and and I was like really I couldn't get too far down because I'm like, this is so cold. I could only get to my waist. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. I understand, unlike you, I understand other people who do enjoy cold showers and baths, but I am not one of those people. (laughs) You're right. I don't understand those people. (laughs) I think they're even more masochistic than I am. (laughs) Not touching that. So (laughs) he comes back to the Eucharist who tells him that the fowls have arrived. They talk about where they're putting them. Jeremy says they will need to make hen coops. 
They work on putting the coups together. Eukerge asks Beale's opinion, and he says he's seen worst, but not many. They try to get the birds in them with Jeremy wanting a one-at-a-time option, which, honestly, yeah, it's going to be a lot longer to do that, but it makes more sense. Mm -hmm. Well, Eukerge just wants to do them all in moss. Of course, the dog, Bob, comes in the middle of this and scares the crap out of the birds, some of who make for higher hills. They get maybe two-thirds of the birds back. So already, it just got the birds, and a third of them are gone now. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I did make a note about... <laughs> I've mentioned this before. I like bodies of water. Um, and... <laughs> I have mentioned that on multiple podcasts. Okay. I just like that. I like bodies of water. I'm I'm a fan. <laughs> um and I <laughs> What? Why is that weird? I don't know. Just lake? Nice. Yeah. <laughs> River? Great. <laughs> anyway, I was just giving context for why I liked this particular phrasing. Uh, I underlined when Woodhouse said the gleam of the sea through the trees, which is a view that I have had, if you have had, and most people near bodies of water have had. Um, and I, I really like it, so I just underlined that because it made me reminisce. Robin's a slant rhyme uh, lover. I guess, yeah. I, yeah, I, I guess you would look at it that way, too. I'm just going to see how many times I can get you to say, I guess. <laughs> um, that was also all I had for that chapter. Yeah, we need to get to these chapters that kick you off so we get more notes. <laughs> I don't know if it works that way, because honestly, like, I think if I'm angry i don't write notes <laughs> or at least i write less and, and damn it there are there are no uh water spouts in this one so i don't get you complaining about that it would tear up your hands <laughs> it would <laughs> i don't think it would and he doesn't mention anyone wearing gloves I'm going to change the title of this podcast to the water spout debate. Chapter 6, Mr. Garnet's narrative has to do with a reunion. They had been chicken farmers for a week. The hardest part had been the wire netting, which Beale and Jeremy worked on, while Eucharidge sat in the shade on the deck, a position I'm more used to from him than the industrious worker of the chapter before. What else he has been doing has been ordering many, many things on credit. Jeremy is thinking about his literary work when Eukridge says to Thopper, which happens to be one of the birds that had gotten away, and I don't write it, but I forget why, but they call it Aunt Elizabeth, I think because it looks like Millie's aunt maybe or something. I think she, the chicken had the personality of Millie's aunt. Okay, yeah, that, that makes sense. Uh, both Bob and Eukridge are running after the bird, but Eukridge is highly unlikely to attain the goal. Jeremy is determined for the bird had sneered at him. <laughs> so I actually have a note about that 
exact sentence. Oh, really? One, that I liked it. And two, I said, some, some animals are just like that. I mean, that's true. <laughs> I, I have a, among my pets where I'd be just like, you did this, and then just give you a look. And it's like, yeah. don't act like you don't understand English, because you know exactly yeah. what I said. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Don't be sassy. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> yeah, the bird had sneered at him, and he would not be sneered at by hens. <laughs> that is a good line. Yeah, I'm like, okay, I, I got that. I'm like, okay, I like that because I can also picture a, a hen sneering. I've never yeah. seen it, but I can picture it. Oh, I'm sure if you run into hens, they would sneer at you. <laughs> it's a little uncalled for. <laughs> hens could love me. There you go. She's an egg eater. <laughs> well, apparently you can say that about a lot of people. Hens, no. <laughs> <laughs> you ate my baby. Do we need to explain the concept of like eggs that are and aren't fertilized? Do, do we need to explain the concept of a joke? <laughs> I just want to be very clear. <laughs> I understand you're a comedian. I'm literal girl. Oh, goody. <laughs> As Jeremy slows down, the bird slows down, but it picks up when he does. He dives through a hedge and finds himself in someone's private garden. He is facing the Irishman and his daughter from the train and another man who is holding the bird. My only other note in this chapter, besides the steering head, is when... <clears throat> You were just talking about again people eating eggs, which is his favorite subject, apparently. <laughs> and all I all I said was this guy thought that thought. Because <laughs> I just I had thoughts, but I just didn't know how to verbalize them, I guess. Okay. That was my only other note for that. <laughs> so 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 your note was I have thoughts, but I don't remember what they are. No, I mean, I had thoughts, but I didn't know how to put them in words, so I just said, this guy. Chapter 7, where I apparently realized maybe adding the uh, chapter names is a mistake, because I'm going to screw up this pronunciation. The Entente Cordial is sealed. Oh, I read that wrong. You, I'm, <laughs> I'm not saying I pronounced it correctly. No, I read it as the entire cordial is sealed. <laughs> Oh yeah, no, uh, you definitely read it wrong. <laughs> yeah, that's why when you read it, when you said it, I'm like, what? I'm like, oh. <laughs> now, now, I, Entante, yeah, I pronounced that correctly, but I don't know if, if that's just cordial or it's supposed to be cordial or whatever. All right, Jeremy is embarrassed, and the man holding the chicken is a bit condescending. The girl appears to look through him. Only the father appears friendly. Jeremy apologizes and asks for the chicken. The man lets the hen go, but she takes off again. Uh, the man, Mr. Tom Chase, a lieutenant in the Navy, organizes the chase. They capture... <laughs> I didn't realize I was going to say that. <laughs> <laughs> they capture the hen again. Uh, Tom introduces the Irishman, a professor named Derek. 
That's his last name. It, it probably gives his first name, but I've forgotten what it was. Patrick? Huh? Patrick? Is it? I think. Okay. I Like I said, I'm pretty sure they, they said it in the book, mm -hmm. but I, I call him Derek throughout the book. Yeah. Throughout the notes. Uh, Jeremy brings up seeing Derek before and then asks for a place to wash his face. Tom goes with him and advises not mentioning Ireland during lunch. <laughs> I also I did not research like any of the conflict between Ireland and England at the time or anything. I just kind of assume that, you know what? Ireland and England have a long history of some animosity. Mm -hmm. So I'll yeah, I, I didn't research it either. <laughs> yeah, I was like, well, I didn't know if you were going to have a question. I was just going to accept that, you know, hey, it happens. Those, yeah, those things have happened. <laughs> yep. They get to know each other during lunch, and Jeremy talks about the chicken farm, which he discovers has apparently been the talk of the town. Jeremy disavows any knowledge himself of being able to farm and says he mainly came for the golf. And the professor says they should golf together. Playing croquet after lunch, Phyllis asks if he is a relation of the author of the book she was reading. He admits that he is the author and that he had heard her criticisms. After leaving, Jeremy muses that she was very nice, but she was most likely just being polite. And also that he didn't feel easy about Tom. Because... Although he doesn't explicitly state it at this point, unlike most Woodhouse main characters, he's digging on her quite. My only note is one where I'm like, I'm not sure. It's it's at the very end of the chapter when Phyllis and Jeremy are talking about the female character in this book. And you know, she said that Pamela, the character, is a creature. And he said what is a creature? And she said, Pamela in your book is a creature. And it's like, yeah, that's that's not an answer. You just repeated yourself. That's not actually anything. And so I that, that was my note. It was I was I got really annoyed at that. I'm like, yeah, you didn't actually answer the question. <laughs> Much like my egg eater question. Chapter eight. <laughs> A little dinner at Eukage's. The Derricks are coming to dinner. Also, Edwin is coming that day. At, at first, when I read this, because I had forgotten this part, I thought Edwin was also coming to dinner. I'm like, who's Edwin? So, that's one of my first notes. <laughs> remember, I'm writing notes as I'm reading. And that includes even, like, not looking down the page. So one of my first notes. So one of my first notes when Mrs. Eucharist says that Edwin is a beautiful purebred Persian, I was like, "Is he a horse? Why refer to someone like that?" Because oh. I thought it, I thought it was a person. I know. I was like, after they wrote that, oh god, if Robin thinks that's still a person. Well, that's that's what I was like. I, I originally thought it was a person. Then I'm like, oh, is it a horse? Why is a horse coming to dinner? And then. Literally, like four sentences later, uh, it says that poor Edward, poor Edward had to go to a cat's hospital. I was like, "Oh, okay, so a literal cat." <laughs> yeah, so I was I was surprised that Edwin was an actual cat. That was not made clear until like 
seven <laughs> paragraphs in. Yeah, that was, was yeah, because like I said, I read it before and I was so like, Edwin, who's Edwin? Mm -hmm. <laughs> hey, I thought it was a horse. <laughs> Are the horses coming to dinner? <laughs> well, that makes about as much sense as saying a cat's coming to dinner. Yeah, well, I mean, they are just saying the cat is coming, but the way they phrased it, that it is... seemed like the cat is also coming to dinner. Well, yeah, because it says literally Edwin comes today, and then uh, Mrs. Eucridge then says Mrs. Beale is going to give us a very nice dinner. And so it just sort of implies. Yeah. <laughs> you just see a cat sitting at the table. Um, hmm. <laughs> <Tuna>? <laughs> Jeremy thinks the cat is handsome but nervous. The Derricks come and Eucridge is casually insulting to the professor. Jeremy points us out to Eucridge quietly, and Eucridge has no understanding why someone would take being called a fat little buffer poorly. No idea at all. Beale comes to them and takes forever to say that the cat, seeing Bob the dog, went up the chimney. He takes a long time to just spit this out. Mm -hmm. And it's like it's like nowhere else in the novel is like feel like communicate like this. So I'm just kind of like, okay, th this part just feels a little clumsy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, so the the cat went up to chin me. This also means that the dinner cannot be cooked without so without also cooking the cat, which Eucridge wouldn't mind apparently. Yeah, apparently Eucridge is not a great like cat person. Yeah. <laughs> Eucridge suggests prodding the cat with a broom handle, but Beale's wife says she tried and couldn't reach him. Eucridge says they will just have to have a picnic dinner. Nobody enjoys the meal, and the professor tries to talk, but every time Eucridge interrupts him and goes on with his own tale. Jeremy knows he did it without meaning to give offense, but he did nonetheless. After dinner, Eucridge goes on about Ireland, and Jeremy tries to stop him, but does so loudly enough for the professor to hear and take offense at. He insults Eucridge, pointing out his ignorance in the Derek sleeve. After the uh, cat thing, my my next note was when Jeremy pointed out that Eucridge was rude by calling Professor Derek fat. Um, he said, nobody minds a little thing like that. We can't be stilted and formal. It's ever so much more friendly to, to relax and be chummy. And I said, no, it's rude. <laughs> you can be friendly without being insulting. I uh, agree with you, you short little person. Must you. They don't know my height. I mean, I wouldn't call it a height. <laughs> I'm not that far from the average. You're not that close either. <laughs> I was just like... She she says not really knowing what the average height for women is. <laughs> Robin said shortly. <laughs> I'm like I think it's like five five or five six, which I'm not close to. For women, that's probably close to four. You think? Now I have to look it up. Something has nothing to do with the novel. <laughs> that's what you get for trying to insult me. I didn't try. I did. Oh. Five four, boom. I wasn't that far off. I said five five. I was right on the dot. All right. Um, my next note was you said that Beale, you know, talking about the cat in the chimney was a little like clumsy, which I do agree with. 
uh, especially because it was out of character. But uh, Jeremy, while he's narrating, said that Beale's narrative style closely resembled that of a certain book I'd read in my infancy. I wish I could remember its title. It was a well-written book. And all I said was, LOL, I wish it was Dr. Seuss, but it's impossible. <laughs> I guess that's better than you go, oh, I bet it was a Dr. Seuss book. And then right? Leaving it at that. <laughs> I'm just like, I don't know how to tell you this, Robin. <laughs> and then my last note of the chapter was me saying, I guess it's good that Euchridge is just ignorant, question mark. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, see, that's the question. Is Eucharist ignorant or... A mastermind? I don't think he's a mastermind. <laughs> no. Yeah, I, I do think he... He's not as manipulative as Smith, obviously. But yeah, I do yeah. think yeah. there is at least a little manipulation in him. I don't think that had anything to do with the dinner. I think he was just like... Being Eucharist. <laughs> chapter 9, I'm not even going to try to pronounce the chapter title. Jeremy. Dies Irae? It could be. <laughs> Dies Irae? <laughs> I guess it could be. <laughs> uh, Jeremy realizes he's the only one affected by the argument. Eucharist doesn't care either way. But Jeremy's feelings for Phyllis are growing, not as quickly maybe as with most Woodhouse protagonists. Eucharist believes there's no reason to worry about making friends with Derek again and points out Jeremy doesn't appear to be working as hard as he could be. Jeremy discovers the professor did still hold a grudge. Jeremy meets Tom later and it's verified the professor uh, is upset. Tom says he will do what he can. Later, Jeremy is mooning after hearing Phyllis sing through an open window, which was probably pretty cool back then. Comes across a little creepy now. Yeah, that's what I was saying. I was like, it was kind of creepy. <laughs> I, it, it was it was time appropriate, but yeah, yeah, that is true. <laughs> yeah, because I'm kind of like, dude. <laughs> um, I did make a note that while you said that uh jeremy's love for phyllis was relatively slow developing i did make a note i'm like this always happens in pg woodhouse where they see a pretty woman it's like that one i love that one and i feel like that still happened here it's just maybe just a little bit slower yeah yeah also towards the end of the chapter jeremy has a thought where he says Golf is the game of disappointed lovers, and I couldn't stop laughing. I felt like it was accurate. Anyone that I know of that golfs mm -hmm. fits that description. And so I just, I couldn't stop laughing. I mean, I got to be quite honest. I don't have any friends that I know that golf. I wouldn't say they're friends. I don't think that I have anybody in my life that calls. Yeah. Oh, there are plenty of people in my life that call. <laughs> and considering the setting I see them in, it makes sense. I mean, I used to because, you know, mm -hmm. I was on a military base and. Yeah. Yeah, I used to be playing. People. 
I don't want to insult people. I'll just say I'm not a fan of golf. So Same. I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> now, mini golf, on the other hand. It's great. It's great. Love mini golf. <laughs> and it lasts far less time to play. Yeah. Um, oh, so, and then finally, ends the chapter, not only did Jeremy, you know, stand outside to listen to Phyllis sing through an open window, he stayed there for a while. Like, the chapter ends with, another day had generally begun before I moved from my hiding place and started for home, surprised to find my limbs stiff and my clothes bathed with dew. He stood there for a while. I mean, okay. <laughs> Again, early 20th century, whereas... Yeah, I, I don't have an issue with that. I'm more concerned about how long he stood there. Like, I, I accept that it wasn't creepy at that time. That's fine. Next chapter, Jeremy died of pneumonia. <laughs> right? Like, he was there for like six hours? Like, but my my comment was only such a little emo boy. I, I was like, you know, that just makes me feel sad, embarrassed about like my past, like brooding over stuff, which was, I don't think I ever stayed any place six hours. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like maybe in front of the computer playing Sims, but like not outside. Well, I was talking about brooding about love, not just. <laughs> yeah. Okay. We brood very differently. <laughs> well, I got to remember when, when I was the youth who would do that type of stuff, really didn't have Sims. Well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we just had nature. Okay. <laughs> and we were happy for it. Were you? <laughs> Not really. Yeah. <laughs> There's so many bugs. So many bugs. Why do I hate her? That's why I prefer bodies of water. Yeah, because there are no bugs in water. I mean, <laughs> I'm I just, like, if I don't see them, they don't exist. That's exactly what I was thinking. I'm like, if I don't pay attention to them, they don't exist. Uh, that would be the last note. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Chapter 10. I enlist the services of a minion. Now, I'm just going to guess. Correct me if I'm wrong. Is this maybe the chapter where your feelings about Jeremy started to turn? Or were they already there? No, I think that's accurate. That this is the chapter where... It was a starting point. So you're pretty much like, hey, pal, only Birdie can try to drown people. Um, no, it wasn't, it wasn't necessarily that. I like, yeah, I think the drowning plot is silly, but I didn't have a big problem with it. <laughs> hey, who doesn't try to drown somebody? Right. It was, it was more of the reaction afterwards, which I have notes about. Okay. So I'll so, get to them. Which is, okay. Like, it's one of those things, like, you, you mentioned it before, like, at this point, I've been exposed to various plots that have 
<laughs> reoccurred. And so drowning, I'm just like, okay, sure. <laughs> Robin's at the point in Woodhouse where trying to drown people, kidnap children, mm -hmm. and run chicken farm pyramid schemes is just, yeah. Yeah. That's life. <laughs> yeah. That's, that happens. <laughs> Now let's go steal the hat off a cop. <laughs> yeah. And punch him in the face. <laughs> uh, Jeremy finds himself letting his feelings about Phyllis affect his new novel. Also, things are not going well in the chicken farming. Chickens falling into tar. <laughs> Which, that's a little dark, I thought. I thought so, too. And I'm also like, why do you have so much tar? <laughs> I I assume they're using it to like maybe to build the hen coops or something or or maybe Bill has it to like patch stuff up on the farm. I don't yeah. know, but I'm just gonna I guess when when I was thinking about it, I was thinking like a, a paint can size of tar. Oh, I was thinking like a bucket. Oh, okay. Yeah, but it's I was like clearly not enough. Like, more like a barrel is what I kind of thinking. Yeah, yeah. So I was just like, why do you need so much? <laughs> and then I'm just, I started imagining the chickens and I was like, I'm just going to stop thinking about this. Yeah, it's sad. <laughs> it's like, I'm not even a huge fan of chickens, but I'm kind of like, <laughs> uh, eggs are being ruined, chickens going into the wrong poop, the cat killing some of the chickens. Eucridge is also getting letters asking when eggs will be received. Uh, one day, Eucridge calls Jeremy to see the chickens, who are acting quite sluggish. They ask Beal about it. He says he believes they got the roop, which I have to point out, I didn't look up. I'm not, I just assume. I, I went, ah, chicken disease. Okay, whatever. <laughs> I've heard of roop before, and so I, I didn't look it up. Okay, I mean, I can. I've heard about it, and I was pretty sure it was associated with chickens. So I was like, okay, cool. So there is actually something called chicken root, but it's R-O-U-P. Mm. Basically like a type of chicken cold, I guess. So mm -hmm. Beale says his aunt used to give chickens with the root snuff, but when asked if that cured him, he said no. Mm -mm. Uh, Jeremy volunteers to go ask another farmer what he suggests. He encounters Phyllis on the bridge. She apologizes to him for what happened, but says her friends must be her father's friends. She also calls Chase Tom, which worried Jeremy, because obviously back in those days, being familiar with someone of the opposite sex wasn't looked upon quite as well. Uh, they part, and Jeremy talks to the farmer, who suggests Painting the throats of the birds with turpentine, which I just assume that Woodhouse made it up. I don't know. Maybe they actually did this. It seems wrong, though. <laughs> uh, on his way back, he sees Derek fishing with a boatman named Harry Hawk, which is a weird name for a Woodhouse character. I gotta be quite honest. You think? Yeah. Hmm. I, I guess that's maybe what Woodhouse thinks is like a a lower class kind of blue collar character name. <laughs> I guess. Uh, Jer Jeremy starts to picture 
as all Woodhouse characters do, rescuing the man from drowning, uh, he decides he would have to arrange an accident. After a brief imaginary fight with his conscience, he decides to do this and offers Hawk five shillings. Hawk thinks Jeremy wants to do it as some sort of practical joke, and Jeremy allows him to believe this. Hawk raises the price, and they agree. Originally, when Jeremy was thinking about, you know, saving Professor Derek from drowning, I was like, oh, an imagined drowning plot is new. That was before it turned into an actual drowning plot. Uh, and then the next page, when it turned into an actual drowning plot, all I said was, oh, boy. <laughs> At this point, I'm kind of like what you're saying. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 <laughs> uh, I also at the end of the chapter. So you're you're right. This was a starting point of my opinion of Jeremy changing, and part of it's related to things I will get to later. But part of it is related to he just starts making wild assumptions about things he has no fucking idea about, and it started driving me a little crazy. First F word actually took quite a while. No, I said one a while ago. Oh, did you? I missed it. Mm-hmm. I well, didn't I'm so used to you being profane that it didn't even back me. <laughs> I didn't fully say it say it. I think it's like fa not uh, yeah. But anyway. Um <laughs> because he starts doing this and I'm like, how do you know that? You don't. You don't know anything. You're just making an assumption about people you don't know about. And it really started bothering me. No, what specifically? Is it the whole Tom thing? No, so at the end of the chapter, he's thinking about Hawk. Um, they just agreed to like raise the price. Um, and he he ends the chapter with saying that Hawk is a mercenary man. It is painful to see how rapidly the old simple spirit is dying out of our rural districts. Twenty years ago, fishermen would have been charmed to do a little job like that for a screw of tobacco. Like, how do you know that? You don't. You're making an assumption. It really started getting to me. Because this isn't the first I time. I just love that this <laughs> is the thing that tipped you over. It did. <laughs> like, so far, up until this point, I've been like, okay, okay, you're like, sure, la, la, la. Like, it isn't the first time he's made an assumption. But I'm like, okay, whatever. But then, like, Hawk seems like a perfectly decent man who's just taking people out fishing. And he's like, this guy just like screwed me over. Like you are hiring him to push someone out of a boat to drown. Maybe Hawk isn't the mercenary one. I will just point out. No. That there are plenty of Woodhouse characters who do a lot of the same stuff, but for some reason. I can't explain it. <laughs> Jeremy gets your goat. I can't explain it. Because <laughs> I know I, you're I'm... right. Okay, because I was saying, yeah. I could understand, like, if this specific thing that he did yeah. was unique to him. Sure. And it really ticked you off. But it's like. Sure. Yeah, no, you're. Sometimes. Okay, you're right. there's no reason for me to argue because it's you're right, but I, you're right. I still feel this way. And there's really nothing I can do yeah. to counter that. It's like, yeah. <laughs> you you have got. Yeah, no, you're right. But he still pisses me off. Yeah. And you just that's my argument. We we do have people <laughs> who other people are like, but that person's just like this. But yeah, 
they piss me off. Yeah, like that one though. That one gets to me. <laughs> okay. And, and like I said, I can't explain it. Yeah, there's nothing I can. <laughs> and, and I mean, if if you don't like Jeremy, that that's fine. I, I I would be kind of going like, well, why? Sure. But it kind of feels like it's one of those ones. I don't know. I just don't like that guy. Yeah, I think it's a vibes thing. Okay. There's nothing really I can do with that. Yeah. Like, you know how sometimes, like, you're interacting with someone and you're like, okay, on paper there's nothing wrong with you, but you give me weird vibes, so I'm just not going to interact with you anymore? It's that, and, and, and but in a literary say, character. I have encountered that myself, so I'm sure everybody has. Yeah. Usually it's with real people, not so much fictional yeah. characters. <laughs> I usually with fictional characters I have like specific reasons like with Smith but this one I think it might just be vibes <laughs> and then he kept doing things that just pissed me off well yeah once once there's a little mm -hmm. break in the dam mm -hmm. the water just keeps spilling yeah. out and yeah. it's like it was just this little tiny thing <laughs> But, but look how much water came out. And all of a sudden, there's water everywhere and some professor drowned. I <laughs> Yeah. Okay. So that was my last note for the chapter. <laughs> to, to bring it back to something that you'd be quite familiar with, it, it's like the Friends episode. I don't know. I just hate that guy. Yeah. As the plot really starts taking off, expect my notes to get more unhinged. Okay, I was going to ask a question, but I will just let it come to us naturally. So, okay, <laughs> or unnaturally, however. <laughs> Chapter eleven: The Brave Preserver. Hawk tells Jeremy that Mister Derek goes out that morning. Jeremy goes to uh, get ready. Watches as Hawk dumps the boat over. Jeremy goes to, quote-unquote, save him. Everyone has great words for Jeremy, but the opinion of Hawk seems to be dire. Derek thanks Jeremy and says, bygones are bygones. Jeremy takes the professor to the farm to get dry clothing. Eucridge asks what happened, and Derek has harsh words about Hawk, although Jeremy tries to paint him with a better light. Derek says that he and Jeremy must go on in the link sometime. Eucridge keeps bad-talking Hawk, which I'm sure will in no way uh, hurt Jeremy. <laughs> Jeremy decides to leave Hawk to his fate. Sometimes I do wish we did a video podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Why? <laughs> I didn't do anything. <laughs> okay. I underlined certain words that were used to describe Mr. Hawk. And it's... Uh, Described him as a girt fool. Uh, a what fool? Girt? Girt. Girt. Which what, I... Can you spell that? G-I-R-T. Okay, that's what I... Yeah. And so I took that to, to mean a great fool. <laughs> well, who who said it? Uh, well, that's what I was trying to figure out. It's It's in the narration. Um, let it let it be sufficient to say that on the subject of Mr. Hawk, he saw eye to eye with a citizen who had described him as a girt fool. 
I'm assuming the professor agreed with that and thinking he was a great fool. All the definitions I'm getting now have nothing to do with whatever that may be. So I will just assume as you did in some first. Yeah. Yeah. So, but that was, that was my only note for that chapter was just like, oh, that's an interesting phrase. Okay. All right. Chapter 12, some emotions in yellow lupin, which made me think of the Hogwarts professor. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> Jeremy finds himself the subject of minor fame. Eucharist complains about all the people who are clamoring for money from him, including the butcher and the grocer. Jeremy suggests paying some money, but Eucharist says they need all the money, particularly since Rupe had killed dozens of chickens, which I, I, I didn't quite get the chicken math yet. I don't actually know how many chickens they have now because I no, thought yeah. they started with just 12. Mm -hmm. But they have more. And they have more. But I don't know how many they have currently. So Yeah. Uh, Jeremy finds himself neglecting his work, spending time with the Derricks. Soon after the rescue, he goes to the house and finds Phyllis alone. They share uncomfortable small talk for a bit. They talk about the chicken farm and the failures of it. They talk about his novels and his inability to write good heroines. Jeremy feels this is the moment to say something but then they are interrupted by Tom Chase. So at the start of the chapter, uh, Jeremy is saying that the fame which came to me through that gallant rescue was a little embarrassing. I had an issue with that. Um, <laughs> did. Don't think I need to get into it. And then, <laughs> and then a little bit later, uh, he commented on how Beale looked on Eucharist as an amiable lunatic, and my question was, is he wrong? I mean... <laughs> I think that's a pretty accurate description. That, that's fair. Yeah. Because <laughs> you, you, I know you get notes on mm -hmm. Jeremy coming up. Mm -hmm. All right. All right. <laughs> oh, I do. You look constipated. You're like... Mm -hmm. <laughs> Chapter 13. Tea and Tennis. Tom says he met Hawk. Phyllis calls him a clumsy man. Tom suggests that the man might have done it on purpose. He spins a suggestion about why Hawk might have done it, and Jeremy tries to back the man up without giving away his part in it. Tom asks Jeremy if he cares for a game of tennis. They play, and Tom beats him rather handedly. Jeremy does well in the final game, only to turn around and see that, his, that Phyllis had left. At the end of the fifth set, Tom said, and that, that was that was it for that chapter. <laughs> I mean, they played tennis and they talked while they were playing tennis. Yeah, you know? yeah. I did make a note about you know Jeremy's going on about how you know Hawk isn't a, a bad guy and blah 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 blah. And I said, if he really felt so bad for Hawk and the business he was losing because of Jeremy. He could bring him to the farm so he could do work that way. Uh, okay, but to be fair, he wouldn't get much, he wouldn't get paid. <laughs> I mean, Bale is there on the farm, and we find out later that he, he hasn't been paid for a while. <laughs> yeah, yeah, like that, that is fair. 
but that's also not something that I really knew at that point in the book. <laughs> um, there was also another use of the word austere. Thank you. Yep. <laughs> and, oh, and then um, Jeremy, you know, they're playing tennis. They began the sixth game. And Jeremy is like, and now for some reason, I played really well. And I was like, well, you're not being distracted, dum-dum. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Chapter 14, A Council on War. Jeremy and Eucridge are talking about finances. Jeremy points out they're selling eggs, but Eucridge says, not enough. The creditors say he's not paying enough. Eucridge also blames Mrs. Beale, who seems to bathe in eggs. Millie and, Millie and Jeremy point out there are many things she can't make without using eggs. Also, the hens aren't hatching enough chickens. He blames the incubator, which they got from Herod's. Herod's? Wow. He proposes writing a letter to them. That cheers Eucridge up for a bit until he mentions the grocers and butchers and bakers and fishmongers in town who come up to him looking for their money. Jeremy points out that points out to us that he hasn't contributed anything to the fund because he is quite frankly poor. Mm-hmm. He has a wealthy uncle. Big shock. Big shock. <laughs> because he is a Woodhouse character. And the uncle feels that bachelors should have little money because they are Woodhouse characters. <laughs> the uncle will give him money when he marries, but not before. Jeremy, unlike most Woodhouse characters, admits this is a sensible idea. And he is making just enough money with his writing to get by. Jeremy goes to play golf and wins. The professor does also, so that the two of them uh, will likely be facing off later in a tournament. Phyllis says that no offense intended. She hopes Jeremy will play poorly. Her father had been in the final the last two years, losing to the same man. And that man is not playing this year, so she is hopeful that he will win. Jeremy talks about how he has off days at golf. He says he hopes to have an off day. He asks if he doesn't want to win. He wants more to please her. <laughs> Need video. <laughs> so at the beginning of the chapter, Eugridge is explaining, you know, how poorly they're doing at the chicken farm. And my note was, because you don't know what you're doing. <laughs> Especially when, when they brought up the incubator, and how Eugridge was having it at a, a different temperature than it should be. I'm like, <laughs> well, of course, that's the fault of the people who gave it to him. Of course, not Eugridge at all. <laughs> um, I also made a comment about how quickly his mood changes because he's like all like down and depressed. And then um, Jeremy cracks him back up and then. But then he remembers, you know, the grocer and the butcher and everything, and then he gets sad again. And I was just like, damn, that was quick. He's a Chumbawamba fan. He's not going to react to it. <laughs> you did react. I'm not going to react more. <laughs> oh, um, I can't I can't sing it because. No, you can't sing it. <laughs> <laughs> and then um, you were just complaining that Mrs. Beale, you know, uses so many eggs. And he says that woman literally eats eggs. And 
Jeremy says that habit is not confined to her. <laughs> I was just like, okay, I like that one. <laughs> a lot of us eat eggs. Because <laughs> we're egg eaters. Yep. When Phyllis said that she hopes Jeremy will play very badly against her father, all I said was LOL. So I thought that <laughs> I, I like those sort of like honest moments of like, I hope you play badly. All right, thank you. Running out of chapters, so. <laughs> Oh, it'll happen. <laughs> I'm just going to get to one chapter. And you're like, oh, here it is. I don't like Jeremy. Wow. Thanks, Robin. <laughs> <laughs> chapter 15. Oh, it's, it's this chapter. <laughs> oh, okay. Chapter 15. The Arrival of Nemesis. Jeremy wakes up one day with a foreboding. He sees the professor at the beach and waves, but the, the professor does nothing. Jeremy wonders why you would cut him, as they were quite friendly the day before. Millie gets a letter from her Aunt Elizabeth. They talk about how much money her aunt has to spare. Millie leaves upset, and the men read the letter and see that Aunt Elizabeth has talked smack about Eucridge. Eucridge goes to Millie, and Jeremy reads his own letters. He has a letter from Derek, who requests their relationship be closed. He has found out about Jeremy getting Hog to dump him. Uh, the professor had received a letter from Hawk's woman uh, letting him know what had happened. So, the floor is yours. Before I get to that, I did have a note about Eucridge. I just said, he's just dumb. <laughs> just well, not a bad thing. He's just dumb. No, he, he is... He... Yes, it's not, I wouldn't say dumb, but a word very synonymous with dumb. Okay. Uh, <laughs> uh, but he's also very confident, which mm. generally is a bad mix. And he yeah. is a bad mix here, but it, it's not, for some reason, don't hold it against Eucridge as much as we might with other people. Yeah. So I will say my next two comments are not like super intense, but they are the start of where I just lose all patience for Jeremy. Because <laughs> he, okay, I'm just going to read the paragraph and then I'm going to read my statement. Okay. At the beginning of every, or sorry, at the bottom of everything, history is full of tragedies caused by the lethal sex. Who lost Mark Antony the world? A woman. Who let Samson in so atrociously? Woman again. Why did Bill Bailey leave home once more because of a woman? And here was I, Jerry Garnett, harmless, well-meaning writer of minor novels, going through the same old mill. And my comment was, um, it was your fucking scheme, asshole. And then at the end of the chapter, where... He said, uh, Phyllis would meet me in the village on the cob, on the links, and pass by as if I were the invisible man. And why? Because of the reptile hawk, the worm hawk, the dastard and varlet hawk. And I said, again, it was your idea. Okay, but allow me to play devil's advocate. No. Okay, I'm going to do it anyway. <laughs> he paid hawk. Hawk agreed to do it. Yeah. So... Hawk went back on a deal no, in a roundabout he, way. He did the thing. 
that he was yeah, paid for. Part of the thing was not to. Was it? Well, yeah. That's generally the way it is when you're doing something uh, a little uh, nefarious, I guess. <laughs> okay, but it was still Jerry's idea. Like Yes, but the reason that people know about it is not because of Jerry. I mean, then I could say, oh, well, this is all you could just fault because Jerry, Jeremy, Jeremy, I, J Jerry just he goes he goes by Jerry at certain. It point. doesn't sound right to me though. Okay. Uh, <laughs> Jeremy wouldn't even be there if it wasn't for Eucridge. and then you could just sure. go back. Well, this couldn't happen because of this sure. and this. And this. Yeah. So I mean, technically you're correct, but also it's kind of like. And I know what you're going to go back to saying is basically, yeah, but I don't like that guy. It's like nothing that Jeremy has done has been more nefarious than what Eucridge has done. I don't agree with that. You don't agree? You want to go to – we'll get back to that last <laughs> chapter of the book when, and we'll talk about how much money Eucridge has stolen essentially. Yeah. Compared to you had somebody dumped in the river. He could have drowned. That he was there to rescue him. Because it was his idea. And I just have a really big issue with people creating a situation which like sure we could trace it back all the way back, but like Jerry created that situation and then blaming literally everyone else for the fact that he has to deal with consequences now. Okay. Now replace the name Jeremy or Jerry or however you said it uh, with Eucridge because you could do that mm -hmm. and yet you do not hold Eucridge responsible or look at him any less because of the situation that he created that affects a lot more people. Mm -hmm. than what Jeremy did. I feel like Eucridge dealt with the consequences. Oh, no, he did not. <laughs> he did not. I, something we'll have to get to later. I, al I also feel like I hold these two characters to different standards. Exactly. You're, well, you're, you, okay, you yeah. are a victim of main character bias. Explain. The main character mm -hmm. is okay, let's look at not even main character, but the good guy character mm -hmm. is held to a higher standard. Let's go to, let's say Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Okay. Xander it's a teenage boy, mm -hmm. typical type of teenage boy, gets a lot of flack because of actions that he does, which, mm -hmm. to be honest, oftentimes are dumb or mm -hmm. selfish. A character like Spike or Angel occasionally does something good, and everybody's like, oh, my God. But because Xander is a good guy, you know, he's supposed to be perfect. 
Mm. And if he's not perfect, he's going to be chastised for it. Mm-hmm. Whereas this uh, flawed character mm-hmm. occasionally does something good mm-hmm. and they're praised to the heavens for it and their flaws are pretty much overlooked. We're kind of getting the same thing here. Jeremy's supposed to be the good guy and Eucridge is the flawed character. I don't disagree with you. I think for me personally, it's not so much whether or not they're supposed to be a good guy, but I look at Jerry is supposed to be smart. Whereas I've established my opinion of Eucharist is that he is smart, but ignorant and oblivious. And so I hold him to a different standard than I do Jerry. So you will agree. Mm-hmm. That because Eucridge is flawed, sure, you give him lots of leeway, sure, or let's say leeway. I will, sure. I will say lots. You may not say <laughs> lots, but we both agree that you do give him leeway. Sure. Okay. I'm not. I don't disagree. <laughs> I'm very aware. <laughs> I just don't like Jerry and the fact that he's going around blaming, especially the woman he claims to love okay. well, and no, the guy no, he hired. Now, now you're now you're exaggerating. He's not going around. He is. I think he's literally walking around thinking this stuff. <laughs> okay, That's going around. <laughs> he is walking around. When you like, saying he's oh, going really? around blaming? Oh, ha, that ha, makes ha, it ha. seem like he's going around telling all these people this is. No, I didn't say he was talking <laughs> shit. I didn't say he was talking shit. I said he was going around. Robin, <laughs> you know when you say going around, what it indicates? No, I don't. <laughs> Unlike Jerry, I don't make assumptions. Really. I'm just going to let that one marinate. <laughs> see chapter 16. I think <laughs> you see too much of yourself in Jeremy. And that's why you dislike him so much. You see your flaws projected back at you. That's the rudest thing you could have said. Really? Yeah. I There's got to be many more rude things. No, like by that. the end of the book, I literally hated Jerry. That's so rude. I can't believe you just said that's my face. Sweet chapter 16. You butt munch. <laughs> my favorite part about this is that I was like, before we started the podcast, I'm like, oh man, Robin is not really into this. This is going to be such a boring podcast. Yeah, and then you insulted me. <laughs> well, now I know how to make the podcast live. You made me cry. <laughs> you were laughing. <laughs> don't, don't I'm gonna have to put this one on video at least this segment so people realize oh you made me cry Jeez. you did I have tears on my face you insulted me and then I you cried smiling at me and you just gave me side eye <laughs> chapter six chapter chapper why messed up uh, chapter 16. 
I really, I did think we, we would not go off the rails. <laughs> yeah. I don't know why. I'm, I'm Charlie Brown. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, every time. <laughs> and I also couldn't help but laugh because, like, beforehand, you're like, all right, you need to get, like, more high energy. I'm like, do you not realize I turn it on? <laughs> there we go. <laughs> I couldn't stop. <laughs> That was the douchiest look I've ever seen on your face. You don't realize I turn it on. <laughs> A mirror. You Stop can... insulting me. God. I'm tired of people like seemingly unintentionally insulting me. Jeremy's at least isn't a lovable idiot. Yeah, that's why it's more insulting. I would rather be a lovable idiot. I'm going to clip that quote. <laughs> <laughs> I know what I am. <laughs> I'm Popeye the Sailor. <laughs> <laughs> Chapter 16, a chance meeting. Jeremy confronts Hawk, who is deep in the bottle. Jeremy asks what made him give the deal away. He explains while everyone looked at Jeremy as a hero, Hawk was mocked. Hey, <laughs> rhyme. He would have taken that, but his girl said she wouldn't marry him if he can't be trusted in a boat by himself. that That's what my marriage standard is. Yeah, I'm like, I don't understand that particular rule. <laughs> I'm like, okay. Weird. You Weird are the love of my life, but you cannot handle a boat, so... <laughs> Jeremy forgives Hawk. He leaves Hawk and passes Phyllis and Derek, who do not look at him. Jeremy feels he needs a distraction, so he decides to turn to work, both at the chicken farm and in writing. He admits that nobody was cheerful at the farm, even Eucridge. The demands for money are more and more often. They are having pretty much only chicken up meals. What about eggs? <laughs> Despite wanting to turn to work, Jeremy finds there's not much to do. One shining moment is that Jeremy received a check for some verses, and they used it to buy some food. His writing isn't progressing, except for the villain who, who he has drawn on from the professor. One day, he runs into Phyllis on her own on a cliff. That's the end of the chapter. My only note was when he is working on writing and he has this like super well-developed villain it says i drew him from the professor and made him a blackmailer and i said okay blamer so now it's also the professor's fault i don't think he's blaming the professor but the reason that he can't stop looking at me like that it's weird looking <laughs> What do you mean? I, I don't know. It looks like you're about to pounce. <laughs> I had cracker like in my gum. <laughs> okay. Uh, Sorry. <laughs> the professor is prohibiting him from being able to see Phila. So obviously he, he's just taking those feelings and putting that into his writing. But he's prohibited from seeing Phyllis because he almost drowned the professor. He, okay. He didn't almost drown the professor. You 
You clearly are assuming. Clearly, we see that the professor is not a strong swimmer. We see that in a couple chapters. But he didn't almost drown. Yeah, because Jerry, because his Jerry's plan worked out, but he could have. Okay, but you said he almost drowned. That is not a fact. <laughs> I, I stand by it. You are assuming. <laughs> <laughs> That was my look. You you were so excited for my comments against Jerry, and now you're like, "Oh, Jerry's not that bad." I I didn't I didn't even say that. You're I, the only thing I did was I point out that there's Jeremy and there's Eucridge. Yeah, and, and I've, you're like, I've admitted it's okay everything Eucridge does because he's dumb. Yeah. <laughs> I've already admitted that. <laughs> and do you admit that makes no sense? It, I think it makes sense. I don't think it's fair. I think it makes sense. <laughs> All I'm saying is, ooh, you were like, ooh, I can't wait to see what Robin says about Jerry. And now that I'm making the comments, you're like, well, that's not right. That's not right. That's not right. Like, it's my opinion. It's right. I, I didn't even say that. Yes, you are. You're like countering every comment. You saying something? <laughs> I wasn't going like, "Oh man, I can't wait till she rips Jeremy apart." I was like, "Okay, you say you have notes on this," and it's like, "Okay, next chapter, I guess." Okay, <laughs> so I was looking forward to giving more notes. I've had notes. Yeah, sure. I'm giving you content which you always ask for, and then you're arguing with me about it. <laughs> so you're saying that I should just agree with everything you say? I think you should cut this part out of the podcast. I'm just going to keep the silence. <laughs> in, in fact, I'm going to add like 12 minutes of silence. <laughs> uh, what, what chapter? Oh, did you have notes? On... 16? Chapter 16. <laughs> you know what we're talking about like 12 minutes ago. Yeah, the okay blamer comment that you immediately pounced on. That was my comment. That was your note? Yeah. It was your only note? Yeah. Okay. God, I wish I was there so I could throw a book at you. What? I wish I was there so I could throw a book at you. This book, it wouldn't be hard. <laughs> You're going to see that picture in your phone in like four weeks and be like, what? <laughs> I often clean out my photos library so okay. i will see that note and i will make sure to put it somewhere to save it so that when you visit i'm gonna be so confused in like six weeks <laughs> when you throw an egg at me i'm gonna completely forget about this i will forget about it <laughs> you'll be i'm gonna be so confused do you remember when i was there over christmas and i said Ask me a question in 20 minutes, and then you did. You asked me the question. It took me a solid, like, 10 seconds to remember why. <laughs> Do you remember what gonna... the question was? I don't. It was something about the river. <laughs> that just confused me more. So I think it was about the Arkansas River. Oh, yeah. Because yeah. we were passing it, and I forget yeah. what the question was, but it... Was, it was about the river. You basically said something. Ask me oh, about 
I think I I think I had made a comment about how I always forget that there's a river. And yeah. I'm like, ask me in 20 minutes if I remember going over the and, river. And then I set a timer for myself yeah. without you knowing. And then in 20 minutes, I asked and you're just like, what? Yeah. And well, then I was like, oh, yeah, we went over the river. But So it's going to be that multiplied by six weeks. <laughs> Why? Why? Why did you throw an egg at me? God, that's going to be great. You remember. <laughs> I really don't. All right. Chapter 17 of a sentimental nature. The two of them do the Woodhousean talk of a man and woman who have a slight difference with her words being one word replies. Oh, Woodhouse really loves this. <laughs> That's how I communicate. Yeah, but when you do it, I at least, I assume Chris, know that that means that you're angry. Oh, well, yeah. <laughs> so it's like. I, I don't just keep going on because I know, oh, something <laughs> happened. <laughs> just like, I'm not going to get anything from this. <laughs> yeah, it's like, <laughs> whereas in Woodhouse, they just keep going and going. It's like, dude, she's mad. <laughs> uh, she returns to painting. Jeremy realizes he should have left by now, but remains... He asks her why she wouldn't speak to him. She believes he knows. <laughs> he asks, because of the boat accident? <laughs> accident, she guffaws. He amends it to episode, which I found this funny. I assume you were annoyed by it, but. <laughs> he says he would have liked a chance to defend himself. Here's where trying to drown your father was a good thing. <laughs> <laughs> she gives him the opportunity, although indicates she doesn't believe he will be able to. He sits down. He reminds her of the dinner that Eucridge ruined. He points out, he points out how Eucridge made it so that Jeremy was cut off from a relationship with her. He admitted he felt he needed to engineer a way to get back into their good graces. He felt doing a service would do, but felt waiting for the opportunity to do so might take too long. She says he behaved poorly. He apologizes and said, says he did not want her to think he was simply playing jokes. He gets up to leave and she asks him to sit down again. She, had, she says he isn't quite to blame as he originally thought. Which is a bit generous, I do have to admit. He he points out it is getting dark and asks if he can carry your things. 70% of the way through a novel, the main character admits that he is in love with a woman and then immediately becomes engaged to her. Although we don't really get a proposal, I guess just a kind of a... Yeah. Since we both admitted this, I guess we're engaged now? I don't know. <laughs> pretty Pretty much. Uh, so yeah, I do have to say, because I was reading on Kindle, 70% of the way through the novel, and just that's the first time that sure. he had said, I was like, wow, Mr. Restraint here. <laughs> and that's the end of the chapter. I will say, I don't have any notes for this chapter. I did find it annoying, but eh. 
<laughs> Did the last few chapters just sap all your energy? Because now you're kind of like, whatever, man. <laughs> <laughs> no. Well, it's just like, like, okay, you know, Jerry had one conversation with Phyllis, and now it's totally fine, and now they're engaged and in love, and blah, 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 blah. Like, he didn't have any actual consequences. He got the girl. I'm also like, again, as somebody who has read far more Woodhouse than you, it's yeah. like, Eucridge is his friend. He already has plenty of consequences. <laughs> okay, sure. <laughs> but again, but... I have the foresight of all the other Eucridge stories to know what having Eucridge as your friend is like. <laughs> yeah, to me, it's like this situation that has very little to do with Eucridge that Jerry created, no consequences. Or at least very brief consequences. And so this chapter where they're talking is just like, okay, sure, whatever. I'm just like, because like all the things that Jeremy has done, Birdie has done. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I know you're going to say, yeah, but <laughs> I literally like, just did. <laughs> and you're like, it's okay. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just like <laughs> again. I know it's not fair. <laughs> it's like you're just defeating me with yeah. I'm prejudiced. What are you gonna do? Yeah, that's that's an accurate <laughs> statement. That's a good way to put it. Thank you. Correct. Oh, that was it. Oh, yeah, okay. yeah. It's, it's literally like everything you said is correct, and I don't care. I mean, it's not even like with Smith, where it's just complete malice. Sure. <laughs> I just, again, I can't explain it. Jerry drives me crazy. I, I got to be honest. I I didn't see this coming. I, I could see you disliking Eucharist because that makes sense. <laughs> There's lots to dislike about you. To, to me, Eucharist is, for lack of better words, an idiot, but not a lovable one. Oh, definitely not. But it's still like, okay, like my standard for you is like here. <laughs> and what to you? It's perfectly fine to have different standards for different people. Sure. I'm more like, mm, standards should apply equally. Well, no, because that's not fair, in but my view. In very extenuating circumstances, yes. <laughs> I believe that's fair. Okay. I believe in the case of Jeremy and Eucridge, yeah, it's perfectly fine to give the same. Mm. Now, if it if, if it's Jeremy versus like uh, a mentally disabled four-year-old, then yeah, you apply different standards. <laughs> but <laughs> okay, <laughs> you could just... mean, yeah. <laughs> but uh, I mean, again, can't disagree with that. 
But I don't think that Eukridge really has any extenuating circumstances that gives him more leeway. Mm. I honestly feel he has less because he has a history. <laughs> but I don't know that. I mean, you kind of do because Jeremy I mean, I know, but like I haven't seen it for myself. So we we will have to after we read all the Eucharist story, you kind of do a comeback here and say, okay, now okay. how do you feel about Eucharist and Love Among the Chickens now? Okay, that's fair. Let's hope that I remember Love Among the Chickens. <laughs> yeah. I'm gonna say you should, but I know that the next book we're reading, I have read. <laughs> yeah, you don't remember any. I of don't it. remember it. I read of the brief Wikipedia synopsis of it, and it did not help me at all. So, did you have any other notes on that one, or no? I didn't have any notes on that one. Okay, so chapter eighteen, Eucridge gives me advice. This is entirely Jeremy's fault to even talk to Eucridge about this. I. That's completely on Jeremy. Uh, they talk about whether or not Derek would give consent. Uh, this is He's still talking to Phyllis here. They both feel it unlikely. Also, she feels he wouldn't want to miss her because of Nora. Nora is her sister, whose mm -hmm. name has been mentioned a few times in here, but she doesn't really appear in the novel. Yeah, we like see, see her once. I like that's about it. Yeah, and it was so slight that I don't really remember it. Uh, she's going to get married to Tom Casey. So mm -hmm. Jeremy can stop worrying about that. Uh, he does admit the jealousy he felt, so he's open about his feelings. Um, Jeremy waxes on about her father's anger against him, and she calls him Jerry, which is weird but fills him with delight. Jeremy wonders if time would be enough for her father to forgive him. She says it's possible in a way that suggests it's unlikely. He wonders if he should talk to him and suggest the next day at the beach, which, yeah, that one. <laughs> Jeremy asks Eucridge for advice. Oh, boy. He tells Eucridge he is engaged. He explains the issue with Derek being tossed in the water. Eucridge suggests Jake is the way to go. He explains how he happened to get married. He explains how he first met Millie. He bought a third-class ticket and just put himself in a first-class section on a train where she was at and followed her to a house and talked his way into the house so that he was basically able to get M Millie out of there before his aunt really knew what was happening. Jeremy decides that Eucridge is right. Oh, boy. He tells Eucridge he is going to talk to the father the next day. Eucridge says he will go with them. Well, you automatically know it's going to fail now. <laughs> so that's the end of that chapter. So when uh, Jerry and Phyllis are, are still talking at the beginning of the chapter, he admitted, I used to come every night to the hedge opposite your drawing room window and brood there by the hour. And she said, poor old boy. And then he continued, 
hoping to hear you sing. And when he did sing and he joined in all flat, I used to swear. And my note was still creepy. Okay. I mean, you're applying modern. Yeah, I am. <laughs> this is the strangest kung defense. <laughs> We're just lying. Yeah, I'm not being fair at all. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Argue with that. <laughs> um, you're wrong. I am. <laughs> <laughs> it's a pretty effective technique. <laughs> Throw two eggs. <laughs> Um, and then when Jerry starts, you know, as you said, waxing on about uh, Derek's anger, he starts to say, well, he does say, actually, let me say, thou are not so unkind as man's ingratitude. I saved his life. And I wrote, OMG. Because at that point, I'm done with him. I, I do want to point out the part that you, hello, homie. He? Made this situation. He doesn't get a claim. I saved his life. Okay, but if we go back to well, this only happened because of this. This would not have happened if Eucridge hadn't insulted him for no reason whatsoever. Okay. The way to deal with an accidental insult is not by drowning someone. You made several leaps. <laughs> that makes it seem like, oh, you insulted me. I'm gonna try to drown you. And that's not, you made you made you <laughs> like leaped over several cars to get to that one. <laughs> it's not a wrong statement though. It's not a right statement though, either. <laughs> <laughs> mm. And then after when he was talking to Eucridge, <clears throat> he says, uh, I will go to the professor. I was going to any how, but now I shall go aggressively. I will prize a father's blessing out of him if I have to do it with a crowbar. And I just said, I'm like, sounds like a bad idea. <laughs> sounds like it's not going to go well. I mean, that, that uh, yeah. Yeah. No, the way, the, just knowing the professor, the way to get to him is not through aggressiveness. Yeah. <laughs> what? Nothing. Chapter 19. Asking Papa. Jeremy notes upon reflection that he picked a poor time in place to talk to Derek. Yeah, I don't understand. Let, let's, <laughs> you think? Let's confront him when he's in the water. <laughs> After you tried to drown him already. <laughs> He didn't try to drown him. He paid somebody else to dump him over. It's really not that different. I mean, it is. Hawk was the one who did it. He was following orders. He, he was doing a service for money. Okay. I, nobody forced him to do this. But it was still Jerry's idea. Okay. You're really stuck on the idea part, aren't you? Yes. <laughs> Actions don't matter, only ideas. <laughs> Confronting a man in the water was a poor choice. Also, bringing Eucridge was a bad idea, which anyone who is friends with Eucridge would have known immediately. I mean, I say that, but people keep hanging out with Eucridge. Not necessarily 
seeking to, but he just kind of forces himself on them and they don't get rid of him. They swim up on the professor, surprising him, making him slip into the water, which I'd be like, okay, yeah, this didn't work. I'm just going to leave now. <laughs> Jeremy tries to talk to him, but Derek is uninterested and feels like his letter said everything that needed to be said. Eucridge tries to talk, but Derek won't allow him. Jeremy points out during that during the conversation, Derek keeps getting hit by waves and getting water in his mouth. So he's drowning again slowly. <laughs> he tries to go to the beach, but collides with Eucridge, who inadvertently takes him under the surface. Jeremy tries to talk, but the professor says he has nothing to say to him. But with Eucridge's urging, Jeremy declares his love for his daughter and tells him that they are engaged. Derek calls him a scoundrel. Jeremy explains his reasoning for what he did. The professor escapes, having not given his consent. I have a lot of notes on this chapter. Oh, goody. And you're going to argue with every single one of them. No, I'm not. <laughs> wow. Um, a big wow. What? What? What'd you say? I said not a big wow. <laughs> I made a comment at the beginning agreeing that he should not have brought Eucridge with him. That really just made everything worse, which I guess you won't argue with. I mean, I said that, so <laughs> <laughs> it would be pretty silly for me to go and like, no, actually bringing Eucridge was a pretty good idea. <laughs> um, <clears throat> and then when they're in the water with Professor Derek, and then he sort of like bumps into you and they end up going under the water. I did appreciate that Eucharist said, you took me by surprise, laddie. Rid yourself of the impression that you're playing water polo. And I, I put an LOL next to that one because I, I, I did like that quite a bit. So Eucharist starts arguing that because Professor Derek didn't know that it was arranged at the time when Jerry rescued him, that therefore... He shouldn't be upset. And then Jerry, as he's narrating, agreed with that logic and said that, where's the beginning of the sentence? Oh, I had certainly pulled the professor out of the water and the fact that I had first caused him to be pushed in had nothing to do with the case. And I made a comment. I said, mental gymnastics. Because... To me, that's bending all sorts of ways to finally get to the point where you want and ignoring all the other context around it. <laughs> I I just like you just said about Jeremy. Mm -hmm. What I was just pointing out that you were doing because you two are a mirror of each other. We're not. Stop <laughs> insulting me. I do want to point out that I haven't disagreed with any of your points yet. So you agree that it's mental gymnastics? That Eucharist was doing? Yeah. That Jerry was doing? <laughs> Eucharist started it. Oh, why? Okay. <laughs> Let's talk about this. Why you keep tracing everything back to Eucharist. Literally, Eucharist was the one who said it. Okay. <laughs> but Eucharist you're... Euchard started it. Why would you say Euchard started it? You see here where Euchard started? Okay. <laughs> but you're like, you're, there seems to be an implication, though, in your argument that because Euchard started it, 
fine that he bears the responsibility for what happened. No, you're assuming that. Okay, that's why I said implication. <laughs> that, but but I wasn't implying anything. Well, I'm just saying that's what it that again seems to be an implication are the words that I said. Yeah, that's why I used the word implying. <laughs> do, do you not realize how implying and implication are uh, linked? No, I do. <laughs> I can't hear you very well with your face buried in your book like that. <laughs> Neither can the podcast listeners. I also like when... <laughs> this is like a philosophical debate. I, well, I'm just I, like... I feel like we're on the good place. Just arguing intent and... <laughs> I'm going to say, I have not disagreed with you when you pointed out that my reasoning is flawed. You're, you're not not disagreeing with me so aggressively. <laughs> I'm like, we're 700 miles away, and I'm feeling like I need to back up a little. If we were first, I would be hitting you with this. Wow. Parental <laughs> abuse. It's a 135-page book. You'd be fine. Are you going to hit yourself with the book? Bring it. <laughs> <laughs> no. Okay, that's a little different. <laughs> <laughs> what? It's only like a 650-page hardback book. It probably weighs, I don't know. 15 pounds? I was about to say 15 pounds. It's got a little bit of length, too, so with a good... Yeah, because I'm like, I've I've carried it. I know how heavy it is. Yeah, when I opened that at Christmas, I did not think that was a book. <laughs> I know, I, I opened it from the packaging. I was like, oh, this will be fun. <laughs> By the way, it's uh, 40, a Doonesbury retrospective, so it's like over 600 pages. It's a very long book, weighs about 15 pounds. You could kill somebody with it if you caught them unawares. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway. See how I diffuse the situation? I'm going to hit you. See how I undiffused the situation? <laughs> yeah. I'm very talented at that. I am. <laughs> and then in the narration, I will say this paragraph annoyed me, but the phrasing in there I enjoyed. So I'm kind of confused about how I feel about this paragraph. But <laughs> it says, if he had listened attentively from the first and avoided interruptions and had not behaved like a submarine, we should have got through the business in half the time. I'm sorry. That's funny. So I wrote LOL because I did like it. I thought it was funny. But I was also annoyed that Jerry had the audacity to think it. Dude. And that's it for that chapter. What? If you were able to somehow record all the thoughts that you had in a day, and like six months later, go back and read them, mm -hmm. 
you would be offended by some of the things. Sure. <laughs> okay. Kung Fu. <laughs> yes, you're right. <laughs> you're you're right. I probably would be. <laughs> this is really annoying, Jack, because I'm not arguing. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it's just like, well, you're wrong about this. Yeah, I am. It, okay, so change your mind. No. No. <laughs> I, I'm wrong, and, and I'm okay with that. Wow, you you just created a million copy selling book, self-help book. I'm wrong, and I'm okay <laughs> with that. It's not a bad idea. Oh no, you you could definitely make a lot of money. Get people, hey, yeah. I mean, all it is is radical acceptance. That's the actual term for it. <laughs> I'm just saying this is the, weirdly this is like the most legitimate debating that you've done. <laughs> just me being like, yes, I'm wrong. That's fine. The the tactic of non-debate is defeating me <laughs> honestly it's perfect for non-confrontational people <laughs> which i generally am but i'm also a person who you like debating i don't like going yeah you're right yeah Often, i don't i don't mind like to encounter people who are right that i'm debating well yes <laughs> i i often encounter people who are right but I'm not debating them. <laughs> I don't know if you remember, like, a week ago, we had a conversation where I pretty much... Sound like, senile. You remember <laughs> a week ago, Dad? What? <laughs> I'm, I'm more meant to just be like, my memory is so bad, but okay. Yeah, now you're going to mention how many be like, no, I don't remember that. <laughs> yeah, right. I'm almost positive you won't. Oh, God. Um, <laughs> just because I don't know if it was a week ago or more than that. At some point recently, we have talked about how I generally just accept that I'm going to lose games. He doesn't remember this. <laughs> I don't remember. <laughs> and I can't, I, I can't remember the context, but I know we talked about it recently. I was like, I just accepted this. I'm, I'm going to lose games. I feel like I have a memory of it, but not yeah. associated with anything. <laughs> yeah. And so it, that, acceptance that I, I will very rarely win like a, a board game or a card game or whatever carries over into debate. I accept that I won't lose. And so I, wait, no, I accept that I won't win. <laughs> <laughs> I, I won't win. So I just lean into the Robin logic. Yes. Of like, yeah, this is my opinion and you can say whatever you want with your fancy schmancy debating, but this is my opinion and I, I'm correcting that. I will also point out, generally, when you do argue, you get flustered. Sure. You're, you're, it's not that you don't know what you're trying to say or anything, mm -hmm. but what's in your brain and what comes out of your mouth don't always connect. So I think that you can say that for any time, not just when I'm flustered. We, we have often talked about uh, there's Robin and then there's work Robin. Work yeah. Robin has like her shit together, <laughs> and then uh, out of work, Robin's just like, okay, don't need that anymore. <laughs> out of work, <laughs> Robin is your brain, but the the I don't know the, the logic part is just yeah. like, 
I didn't set that aside. It's there. Yeah, when I need it. But if I need it, I have to reach over, put yeah. it back in. And that takes so much time and effort. It's like how I don't drink water when I'm at home because it's all the way across the house. But that's dumb. <laughs> you need to drink water. It's, oh, I thought you were saying it's dumb to have the water all the way across the house. <laughs> Robin logic. I drink tea. Has water. Oh, actually, no, I am actually drinking water <laughs> because the jugs are empty, so we had to buy just bottled water, so that's in the kitchen. So okay. I can just grab it. I mean, I, I, I can't say much. I keep forgetting to drink water, too. Well, I drink plenty. I just don't drink water. I don't drink alcohol, either. That really sounded like I'm wow, 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 wow. totally blitzed. <laughs> Dad just broke all the time. <laughs> we, we've already talked before about the only time <laughs> I drink when I'm with you. And after listening to this, people probably understand. <laughs> <laughs> don't don't choke on a cracker, please. People are probably are like, yeah, I'd be drinking if she was my daughter. <laughs> <laughs> oh, All actually, right. I, we, we did totally go off track. Did you have any other notes for that? No, I think that was a... <laughs> okay. You said you had a lot of notes, and then we... Went off track. Hey, we we talked about it for a while. Okay. <laughs> yes. Oh. <laughs> I I shouldn't say this because I don't like it, but you should definitely use that debate tactic more. But just letting the old person's like momentum just okay. That's fine. <laughs> I use fine. it a lot. <laughs> I, I, I not with you. I was like, because I'm usually not arguing with you. <laughs> yeah, that's the thing people don't understand is that we don't <laughs> argue a lot. Yeah, this is the first time that like we apparently like really disagree on something. <laughs> it's not that I no, I don't want. It's not that I disagree with you. I think you're wrong. <laughs> if that makes sense. That makes no sense. Usually, when people are wrong, you disagree with them. Well, okay. I don't necessarily disagree with the things that you're saying about Jeremy in a vacuum. Okay. But I do think you're wrong because you're holding Jeremy to different standards than other people. Sure. Mm -hmm. I'm just going to move on <laughs> and put the other kid getting all of their inheritance. <laughs> they drive you crazy in a different way. They, they do. <laughs> Chapter 20, scientific golf. I don't know what I wrote. Chapter 20, scientific golf. What did you write? I don't know. I think I just added some multiple eyes in there. <laughs> Either that or my eyes are playing tricks on me. Jeremy talks about golf, which, whatever. If people have listened to our podcast, they know us and sports are kind of like, sure. They, I think people have realized if they've listened to more than this episode, 
we don't like sports that take a very long time. Yeah. I don't understand cricket. I yeah. think if I understood cricket that I'd probably enjoy it, watching it, like modern cricket. I don't like golf. Mm -hmm. uh, soccer, I'm like ambivalent about. Mm -hmm. He doesn't cover baseball that I'm aware of. Yeah. Baseball, at least, at least, oh, I know about baseball, even though I don't really watch it much anymore. I was a big fan. Mm -hmm. uh, I know he talks about American football a little. Mm -hmm. He talks about rugby. And I'm like, rugby, oh, that's violent football. Okay. And so it, me and Woodhouse Sports just aren't going to. Yeah. He, he talks about tennis a little bit but doesn't really get into it mm. very much so mm -hmm. so golf i no i find golf very boring <laughs> that's fair uh, like george carlin says a long walk ruined <laughs> <laughs> uh the the derrick's gardener comes with a letter it's from the professor talking about their upcoming golf match as he has been rebuffed by the professor, Jeremy sets out to beat him at golf. It's a day of golfing, and Jeremy tries to be friendly with little friendliness returned from the professor. Jeremy lets off an excellent drive, and the professor doesn't at all. I think he said like four yards or... I think so, yeah. Maybe inches or something. Two yards. Okay, so... Six feet. Yeah. Uh, Jeremy wins the first five rounds, then six, then seven, then eight. <laughs> Jeremy decides to let him win eight holes in succession and then win the final to defeat him and humiliate him. Which, yeah, okay, that's what he's thinking. You are, you are. Convicting on thoughts. Yeah. But not paying attention to actions. I'm paying plenty of attention to action. Okay, then you should realize, okay, he did think this, but then what he did after. Okay. Okay, on the final hole, the professor holes in six. Jeremy is next to the hole in four. Jeremy looks at the professor... He tells him to go on. Jeremy feels compassion. He points out that he could miss, and then the professor would win, something he would be really happy about. Jeremy says the sudden joy would make him miss this shot. For example, if the professor were to consent to the marriage, the professor laughs and says Jeremy has beaten him. But really, the professor was the one who beat Jeremy because after the professor wins, Jeremy goes to the farm to let Eucharist know that his engagement is going through, but he discovers that both the Eucages have left. Me, so, me, me, me. Jeez. <laughs> this book is going to ruin our relationship. <laughs> we had so much worse that could have ruined <laughs> Like, now we're just mocking each other. <laughs> so... At the beginning of the incredibly long chapter about golf, 
Oh my um, god, it wasn't even that long. Dude, it felt like so long. I I mean, I I didn't have any trouble with it. And like I said, I don't like I, golf, but I had a lot of trouble with this book in general. <laughs> compared to like some of the cricket chapters we've received in other books, this was nothing. <laughs> when I don't even know what's happening. <laughs> so you were reading about golf got that <laughs> oh he's he's talking to the dog which okay um and he's saying that like his whole plan is to humiliate the professor and i just made a comment like that's an awful plan. <laughs> um and then I had a question because it seemed like Jerry started punching the dog. <laughs> I don't believe that's the case. And if, if it is, I really missed that. Bob wagged his tail cheerfully. I mean it, I said, rolling him on his back and punching him on the chest till his breathing became stir I don't actually know this word. Stertorous? Uh, basically, I think that means kind of like stuttering. So I'm like, he's punching the dog. Well, I don't believe he was like beating the dog up, but well, no, I just had a bunch of question marks around the use of punching. <laughs> I mean, you've seen me with Rose. I, I mean, that's like slapping fair, though. Rose is a masochist. <laughs> she likes it, yeah. Um. <laughs> And then I drew a little eye roll emoji when um, Jerry said, I am not always good and noble. I am the hero of this story, but I have my off moments. And I drew a little eye roll. I mean, it's true. Okay. I, <laughs> I still thought it was annoying. Everything right. you say now, I'm just going to be like, you're right. <laughs> I, I'm just, I know there are some books that we have read that are the same, and I'm like, I'm like, some of the characters in there, I like get so annoyed at, and you're like, oh, I like that character. I'm just like, mm -hmm. <laughs> but this guy, this guy, for whatever reason, <laughs> I told you, I can't explain it. Um, And then when, you know, they're finally golfing. And uh, the professor and Jerry just stare at each other for like a half minute. Um, he says, I believe if I had smiled, then he would have attacked me without hesitation. And I wrote, I would too. And then later. A little bit of violence, got it. Yeah. And then later I made a comment that there's too much golf. <laughs> really? So little golf in this chapter. There's too much. There's too much. That that apparently is my last note. So I'm like, there's too much golf here. <laughs> Did you actually finish the chapter? You just like, I finished it. There's too much golf. I'm just going to skip to the next chapter. <laughs> no, I, I read it. All right. Chapter 21, The Calm Before the Storm. Beale doesn't know why they've gone. He tells Jeremy they didn't pack. Jeremy thinks that they bolted. Jeremy knows he could return to London, but he wants to stay there because of Phyllis. He knows that the de 
collectors will be coming as soon as they realize Eucharist has left. But he's going to stay on for at least a fortnight. Yes, the Beal's wages are in arrears. Yes, both he and Miss Beal are for a month back. Jeremy points out that he can't be any worse off. He says that he'll receive a check next week for some of his writing, and he will look into the back wages. Jeremy re recollects how Eucharidge, when they were schoolmasters, had bought suits on installment and then left before paying them off. I believe you call that stealing. I didn't have any notes on that one. <laughs> Oh, you did bad stuff, whatever. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> I'm, quite frankly, it's kind of overshadowed by how much I hate Jerry. <laughs> this is like the most unnecessary hatred. He's <laughs> annoying. <laughs> I have my opinions, but. I know. That loses effectiveness the more you use it. <laughs> also, are, I will make you laugh while you're chewing on that cracker, and then you'll be like, have crumbs shoot out your nose. I was agreeing with you. <laughs> you do it with like this aggressive tone though. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you do it like the Yeah, you're right. Yeah. Yeah. Chapter 22, The Storm Breaks. The next day Jeremy goes to visit Phyllis and comes back later in the day to hear voices including Beale speaking to the butcher and the grocer and others. He finds Beale facing off with about a dozen men, including a, a burly young man, and they're basically at fisticuffs. There's another young man on the grass, and Jeremy surmises that Beale had hit the fallen young man, and the other man had taken up his quarrel. He thinks that Beale is one open to confrontation. I'll say... Well, Eucharist prefers evasion. He is going to go with cancellation, which I don't quite get in this chapter, but okay. <laughs> the standing young man, Charlie, swings at Beale, who ducks and puts Charlie on the grass also. Jeremy takes the opportunity to make his presence known. He points out to the reader that he has not brought up dialect into this, which I guess is... Good. I, I guess he's trying to say that the the men speak in a dialect that is probably lower class, I guess. Jeremy asks what they want and indicates one person to speak. The man mentions how much Eucharist owes him, and all the other men speak up with their own debts. Charlie tries to attack Beale again and is knocked down. Jeremy tells Beale to go inside that he can deal with the men. Beale wants another go at Charlie, but Jeremy says no. Beale leaves, and Jeremy tries to talk to them, and they just start shouting about their debts again. Jeremy tries to get their attention, and they quiet, but don't stop. And another man from Whiteley's comes in and talks about the debt he is owed. The man asks if Eucridge has done a bunk. Jeremy points out to the men that he has nothing to do with Eucridge, having been there as his guest. One of them says that he will start legal proceedings against Eucharidge. Jeremy's like, okay. <laughs> Despite not him not owing them anything, the men still ask where their money is. Jeremy asks Beale to bring out a case of whiskey. 
another point where you know what jeremy just does not have the best ideas <laughs> this is not a good idea uh he goes to find some glasses of water allowing another feud to start between beale and the men most of them are now cheering beale as he is facing off against the pot boy from the pub who tried to stop the distribution of whiskey that the pub was owed money for. Everybody's mood is better except for Beale and Charlie. Charlie says they might not be able to get their money back, but they can get their own. Jeremy realizes there is nothing further he can do, and the men basically sack the place with even Beale giving up other than knocking Charlie down again. The men even go after the chickens. Young men from... Whiteley says it is disgraceful, and Jeremy is about to answer when he hears a roar asking what all this means. It is Eucharist. So my only note for the chapter was when Jerry was like trying to talk to them, and he said that I had meant to be so conciliatory to speak to these unfortunate words of cheer, which should that which should be as olive oil poured into a wound, and I just said. So bad. I assume olive oil is bad in a wound. Well, I mean, I'm sure we think that now, but maybe they thought back then. Cool. Maybe. Is it a natural like neosporin or something? Extra virgin olive oil has proved beneficial effects in skin skin wound healing of chronic lesions. Hmm. So. Okay. Yeah, Google shows that there's a lot of benefits to putting olive oil in olive oil, or at least people have believed so. So I, I'm guessing for the time and for mm -hmm. knowledge, olive oil and wounds. Good. All right. That's fair, I guess. And also tasty. <laughs> Press. Okay. Here. That was it. I said my only note. Chapter 23, After the Storm. Eucharist wonders why Jeremy would allow this to happen. <laughs> and Jeremy points out there is only so much one man can do, and that with Eucharist leaving without a word, at which point Eucharist asks if he didn't get his note. The note, of course, it turns out, is still in his pocket. Uh, he and Millie had gone to touch Millie's aunt. Not that way, Robin. <laughs> they were able to get money from her. Jeremy is still a little annoyed at Eucharist and gets some digs in. Eucharist decides to confront the man. He calls them scoundrels and worms. He tells them to leave or he will open legal proceedings against them. He seems furious and the men leave for some reason. I, I, I Honestly, I didn't really like this part because it, it's like he doesn't really go into what he said and somehow he talked these men who are owed this money to just leave. Mm -hmm. And it's like, yeah, no, I don't buy it. Uh, Jeremy encounters her later and Eucharist is perfectly fine, but says he's been thinking about starting a duck farm. Which I understand even less than a chicken farm. Like chicken farm, I get, you get eggs and chickens. I don't. What do you get from a duck farm? Yeah. Oh, you get eggs. <laughs> I was like, you get eggs <laughs> and ducks. <laughs> <laughs> I 
That took me a second. <laughs> I mean, to be fair, do we eggs do we aren't eaten as eggs. often as chicken eggs, but still. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Wait a minute. If chicken eggs, if chicken lay chicken eggs, what the hell do ducks lay? <laughs> well, I was more thinking it was like they, they don't lay anything. Obviously, I know that's not true, but I just had a brain fart where I forgot that duck eggs were a thing. I, I think the point is basically is that it's pretty much the same scheme, and somehow Eucridge thinks this is going to work, whereas the chickens didn't. Sure. So, uh, did you have any notes on that chapter? Nope. Okay. <laughs> what? <laughs> This makes less sense than the chickens. <laughs> it does. Even even if ducks lay eggs, oh. which which they do. Even if. Which they, hold on, let me get there. Which oh, they God. do. Like why why pivot? Like you're already used to chickens. Just try different techniques. Like maybe setting the incubator at the correct temperature, and see what'll happen. Instead of being like, I'm gonna go this. Other bird. See, what you're trying to do is use logic mm -hmm. with Eucharist. Yeah. Which has been like, during this podcast, me trying to debate you. <laughs> it, it, it doesn't do anything because you're just like, yeah. And you're trying to use logic with Eucharist, which just, please don't choke. <laughs> <laughs> which just doesn't work because yeah. Eucharist doesn't really do logic. I guess that's fair. <laughs> How's your head feeling? I'm still stuck with duck eggs. <laughs> <laughs> that was just a, a momentary brain fart. <laughs> now, to be fair, I do see you're like, I don't eat duck mm -hmm. or duck egg. So, mm -hmm. although I don't know if eggs even crossed your mind, but you're like, so obviously you would get far less from ducks than you would chicken. Yeah. I eat chicken several times a week, at least. Yeah. <laughs> I hardly ever eat duck. <laughs> I, I, I see the Robin logic there. Sure. <laughs> but. <laughs> I just forgot about duck eggs for a second. Imagine. It's fine. I forgot ducks and eggs. <laughs> I mean. <laughs> you know, I'm glad you said that because I was feeling real defeated this whole podcast. <laughs> Because <laughs> you're just <laughs> you you all of a sudden developed a black belt in debating and <laughs> wiping the floor with my ass, and then it's like duck eggs. <laughs> so <laughs> Robin. Yes, father. Do you do you have any thoughts about uh, love Among the Chickens that you haven't expressed in here or anything to say about the overall book? I don't think so. I mean, generally, 
I, I found this book, like, it really only took me, like, five days to read it, but it felt like it took me two weeks. <laughs> <laughs> like, for such a short book, it took me so long. It literally took me two weeks, but I was doing, like, a, a yeah. chapter at a time, writing the notes on the chapter and everything, so. Yeah. So, so I don't know. I don't know how it... <laughs> I, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how I feel about this book. I don't like Jerry. Sure, maybe I'm prejudiced. Okay. Maybe. <laughs> okay, I am fair, You did already admit in this podcast that you're prejudiced. Yeah. Okay, I am prejudiced against Jerry. Said with an eye roll, yeah, whatever. I'm well, ready. like you said, I've already said it once. <laughs> Didn't think I really had to be explicit about it again, but for you, I will. <laughs> but thanks, Robin. I mean, honestly, I thought the Eucharist parts were pretty funny. I just don't want Jerry to be in them. Well, you have your way now because yeah, you will have an entirely different person, which I would be interested to see how you feel about Corky as a uh, as opposed to Jeremy. Okay. I will have to say, personally, I like Jeremy more. But <laughs> I don't know if that means you're really, really going to hate Corky or for <laughs> some reason you're going to enjoy Corky more. I'm going to take a guess. I'm probably going to enjoy him more. I think you will. Yeah. Quirky really doesn't stand up for himself. So <laughs> <laughs> so that was Love Among the Chickens. Uh, what we're reading next time is Damsel in Distress. A Damsel in Distress. I, I, I will give you a brief synopsis of this because I will point out once again, I've read this book. I read this book, I believe, I read this book less than a year ago. I do not recall it at all. I can't wait to read a book that you have no recollection of. Uh, so this is from Wikipedia. Its plot revolves around golf-loving, sorry, American composer George Bevan, who falls in love with a mysterious young lady who takes refuge in his taxi cab one day. I seem to remember this, but I don't remember anything after. When he later tracks her down to a romantic rural manor, mistaken identity le leads to all manner of brouhaha. Yeah, I'm reading the longer. Mm -hmm. I don't recall this. <laughs> I'm almost like... Did I write down that I read this, but I actually didn't? <laughs> I, I, I have to go back because I, I know I read it last year. Because I, I, well, I'm pretty sure I read it last year. So, Storygraph, I have the special version of it, so I get personalized uh, recommendations of books, so it guesses how I'll like it. It says, based on your interest in books with themes of love, relationships, and social class, such as Sense and Sensibility and Emma, you may enjoy A Damsel in Distress for its similar exploration of romantic entanglements, mistaken identities, and the complexities of high society, particularly in the character of Maud Marsh and her various love interests. 
Okay, I did. I read it in November of twenty twenty. Mm. So it wasn't last year, and I don't know what I rated it because I didn't put ratings in twenty twenty two. So all right. I don't remember it at all. So that should be interesting because it basically be like both of us reading the book new. Although I'm going to assume that once I start reading it, that it'll come back to me. Maybe. Maybe. So <laughs> that was Love Among the Chickens, which both Robin and I agreed about perfectly. <laughs> yep. Yep. <laughs> and next time we'll be reading A Damsel in Distress. So thank you for listening. Uh, we will talk to you next time. Toodaloo. Talio. Have some chicken and eggs. <laughs>